Turkey. Cranberry sauce. Gravy. Mashed potatoes. Green bean casserole. Uh, hot buttered biscuits. Mmm. Pilsners. Lagers. Box. Hefeweizens. Blondes. Single malt scotch. Ambers. Um, I think this Thanksgiving is going to be pretty good. I am so thankful for this year. noise that's the name of the show we're recording that i almost forgot don't worry about it don't worry about it don't worry about it what's that over there hey 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 distraction look uh, look at a cat look at the cat look at the cat ferguson ferguson oh jesus (laughs) hey everybody this is digital noise we review blu-rays and dvds and don't get political ever uh or maybe we do and we just hide it somewhere we we do a little it simmers underneath it's subtext i don't know maybe not subtext because we're a podcast it's sub audio See, I'm nice Subcast. to you because I'm the like the officer of like the reviews on oh, the boy. show. How did we get here? Because you're a white guy, but if you were a black guy, is, I'd no. be like, Brian, your opinions are stupid. I'm going to shove them in your stupid face. I don't know how we got here, but we are going <laughs> to review the latest Blu-rays and DVDs. I'm Brian. I'm Officer Chris. Stop that. The, uh, the man. And for the three of you who haven't already turned this off in disgust, it should uh, be destroyed. You can find more of this on iTunes as well as on Stitcher. You, you can follow the show on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast. That's D I G I NoiseCast. Or you can follow the website at One of Us Net. You can like us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash One of Us Net. And hey, 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 Thanksgiving's coming up. That means the holiday shopping season is about to be in full force. So if you're going to be doing any online shopping, especially at the retailer Amazon.com, maybe you come to our website first, click on that pick of the week right there on the sidebar on the front page, and then once you get to Amazon from there, buy anything, anything your heart desires, and we benefit from it. So please do that. We thank you very much. And, you know, I'm just saying I do have a wish list on my profile page, too. We do have wish lists on our profile page. You should probably visit those as well. No, of course not. No, we would never beg for things on the air, except that Chris has done it and it's worked for him several times. I want mainly cat toys. (laughs) They sell those on Amazon.com, so keep that in mind. Also keep in mind that you can still become a subscriber. We have just launched... As of this week, a uh, subscriber-only news show that Chris and I do called The Breakfast Pub, uh, which is Breakfast been, Pub. The Breakfast Pub. Don't you forget about that name. Nope. Uh, but yeah, no, it's a lot of fun, and I think you guys will enjoy it, and that's available to, to subscribers at every level, so jump on that. But now it's time to receive transmission. See, I always, when I don't have this in front of me, when I don't write it down, can't it. I can't say it. it. It completely leaves my head. So let's try this again. <gasps> it's time to reach out to the industry and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open the most questionable of coffers we call The Letter Box. You've got mail. Thank you, Torgo. Thank you, Torgo. <laughs> we should really give that guy Thanksgiving off. Yeah, well, no. Or at least push a plate of leftovers under the the prison cell door. This is what he does. He'll be depressed and probably murder a co-ed if you tell him not to do his job. Yeah, we don't need we don't need another lawsuit on our hands. No, no. He's a his hands of fate are well served. (laughs) Idle hands of fate do the devil's business. (laughs) They do do Manos's business. That's true. Our first question comes from Nicodem Bredlech. 
That's a, hand, a mouthful. I, I just like a turkey sandwich. Yeah. Uh, what movie series deserves an awesome box set, and what would you wish it would include? Uh, obviously, the Step Up movies need to have their own box set. I don't understand why they don't. There's five of them at at this point. Where is the Step Up box series? It needs more of a shared universe thing first. I don't feel like it's got a shared universe thing, really. That is so wrong, and you know it. They need to be like everybody else's universe building. Where's the Step Up universe? It's doing that. It's doing that with every successive sequel. In fact, one of the things I love about those movies is that they have a wholly unnecessary adherence to their own continuity. We're like characters from the third film team up with characters from the fourth film in the fifth film. But in a way that feels like no one actually watched those previous films. See, but that's the thing is it's rewarding for the people like us who, for some reason at this age in our life have started to obsess over these movies. You know, when they get to the point where it's like, you know, the 10th movie and they have to colonize Mars or something and they can only do it by dancing, then yes. Okay. Then I say, Let's let's see the step up box set. But until then, I'm a little. Close. I want it. I want it right now. I want it to have awesome like lenticular packaging that makes people on the front look like they're dancing. And as far as special features, teach me how to do that shit. There should be a like ten part instructional series that teaches me how to do that shit. You know, for me, I think it's like I've gotten into the sets that for something that's like you know you love the whole thing, you want something that's kind of elaborate showy maybe has a little, like that bat- batman said a little bat model and stuff and i was like that's cool i want something to display if i love something enough mm-hmm. and i've always wondered why for the star trek movies the best they've done was like this little thin blu-ray box which is great for putting on the shelf but i want one of big old tennis racket motherfuckers <laughs> you know that chris likes to display the size of his dvd cardboard dick. pages and like has like a little model starship enterprise maybe even the one that they've never actually made a model of which they should which is in all good things when riker's commanding the enterprise and it's got the third nacelle on the top Ooh, i want a model of that really bad but they haven't made one yeah put that in there all right like Fair brand enough. new extra features you know a book that comes with it yeah i want that shit i don't know which of our answers was sadder so i'm gonna move on uh <laughs> we're pathetic it's to, true. to justin zarian's question what would be the ultimate team of action heroes in a non-expendables movie mashup and he he qualifies fictional characters not the actors so sure. we're not thinking in terms of the actors but if we could take characters from our favorite action movies and put them all on a team who would those characters be okay let me qualify the, this question myself by saying I don't want to see my favorite characters as old people trying to be in an action movie. So through the magic of so, hypothetical, we're going to assume that we can pluck them from their prime I'm and put go them all with in the League same. League of Ex- Extraordinary Gentlemen instead of the Expendables. There you go. <laughs> you know, that feels to me like more like a movie I'd actually want to see. In fact, there have been many people who've over the years made artwork and talked about what would be cool if there was an alternate League of Extraordinary Gentlemen of like who would be in it. And my, you know, the first two answers for me, of course, are Buckaroo Banzai and Jack Burton. Okay. Right off the bat, I would have uh, Sam Loomis with a electronically tranquilized uh, Michael Myers. Wow. That he has like on an electronic leash. That's okay. like the Hulk of the team. Interesting. <laughs> you know, come on. Is that good or what? Yeah, no. That's, uh, like Han that. Solo. Sure. Yeah. And you got to have a chick in there somewhere. You do. Um, hmm, that's, a, that's a – oh, so Ripley from Aliens, of course. Fair enough. Yeah. I'm going to go with Paul Kersey, otherwise known as Charles Bronson's character from Death Wish. Uh, then I'm going to go with John McClane for the endurance, uh, snake Plissken, of course, because there's no way I could put together a team that doesn't involve snake Plissken or at least one Kurt Russell character. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and of course I'm going to go with Groot and rocket raccoon as a, as a team. So I've got my Hulk on there as well. Uh, and then I'm going to go with Selena from the underworld movies as Ooh. our, as our sort of female 
member, and that is my that's my action movie character team. That's pretty good. My league of extremely awesome action heroes. Uh, make it happen. All right, let's do it. Let's sign on the dotted line and make this shit happen. <laughs> I don't know how you do that when some of those, well, one of those guys is dead, but that's not important. Hey, wish I was dead. I um, know that whole creative visualization thing and just imagine that that's the way the universe is. And that's the it way is it is. happening because I believe it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about that, uh, that old gag from the critic where John Lovitz is like, I'm going to be reviewing Death Wish Part 9, and it's just Charles Bronson in a hospital bed going, I wish I was dead. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why it always gets me, but it does. Hey, now it's time to jump into the reviews. And reminding you yet again, please, 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 in the name of all that is holy, use those Amazon links. We really appreciate that. Can't tell you how much it helps. Especially around this time of the year. And we're going to start with something that you should absolutely buy for yourself or your friends or anyone that likes good things. And that's 22 Jump Street. Oh, yeah. 22 Jump Street. It's funny. Uh, we were viewing the other day trying to come up with a sequel. That's a, a comedy, comedy sequel, film yeah. That's better than the first one or even as good. Even as, as good. And it's like, okay, eventually I was able to like find up a few more like hours and hours later. But mostly not ones that were better. 22 Jump Street is that film that outdoes the original. It definitely outdoes it, for sure. I I actually think I enjoy watching the first one a little bit more, but I can't argue that the second one goes far and above and beyond what the first one did. Now, of course, we have Channing Tatum, alias Charming Potato, uh, coming back with joining forces with, uh, oh my God, his name has... Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill. I don't know why that escaped me there. But, yeah, so the two of them are coming back, and you might remember at the end of the first one, the the joke at the end was, you sons of bitches are going to college. <laughs> and so it was like, oh, the next 21 Jump Street movie is going to be them at college. And it starts off in this movie, what I love about it, is they do a previously on. Yeah. Like, both owing to, you know, the, the heritage as a TV show, and it's just like, okay, here's the jumping off point. And then you cut to them, and they're in an online university. <laughs> and they're like, man, I thought we were going to go to actual college. This sucks. <laughs> And then, of course, their case takes them to actual college. But I love that they start off with, like, oh, shit, he meant online college. That sucks. I like that from the title on down, it's mocking slash paying homage to the way things were done in the 80s. Yeah. Quite frankly, like, oh, we got, I guess we'll just make it this. And not too much thought goes into it. It's just as long as we can keep it going or make more. And not even just the 80s, but, like, even you could argue more so movie making now because – uh, you know, Nick Offerman has that great speech in the first one where he's like, they're reviving an old 80s program because that's what they do now. They just rehash shit from the <laughs> 80s because no one has any creative ideas. Well, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of like inward looking in this film, but none so much that makes you just get irritated with no, it. No, because that's the thing is when you do a movie like this, no matter what it, I've said this about parody before, no matter what you're doing, you still have to make a decent version of that. Yes. With all the fun you make of it, with all the piss you take out of it, it still has to stand on its own as that thing. And this stands on its own as an action comedy. You don't have to t- have all the jabs in there as well. It, everything else works uh, in addition. But what my favorite Offerman, Offerman in this movie comes back to have another speech like that where he's like, we want you to basically do the exact same thing you did the first time around. The exact same <laughs> exact thing. Same and he appears throughout the movie like, and yeah, we've arrested this teacher just like we did last time. 
exactly like last time. <laughs> because so many of these comedy sequels do have the exact same script, the exact same and plot as the first one. acknowledging that they're doing that, and then they actually do end up doing something kind of different. Exactly. Which is what's funny. Exactly. Um, yeah, you're the jokes are written really well. Very the, sharp. The uh, physical comedy is really well thought out and hysterical. And I'll be damned if Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill don't have a great comic chemistry together. they really do i mean like 10 years ago i would have told you you're fucking stupid if you suggested these movies with those two i'm pretty together. sure we might have said that when the first uh the first movie's cast was announced well, we're until like, what? we saw that chris lord and, and uh, uh yeah yeah when lord miller's lord name miller on it, we're like it. hmm maybe it's got a chance interesting we'll see and sure enough they have not disappointed Yet again, and what I love—I'm really hoping they take on a Sequest movie. Is for... <laughs> yeah, why not? Just... I know, right? I'm like, I'm trying to pick stuff I couldn't care less about from the '80s and go, yeah, do this, yeah, <laughs> not like do this. Mask or Brave Star or Animal, Manimal. Yeah, there's Fucking all kinds a, of stuff. Dude. Auto all Man, kinds of stuff. Auto Man. <laughs> so many things. Uh, if they end up actually doing a Knight Rider movie, I'm just saying. Oh, dude, these are the guys. I'm just saying. Yeah, but yeah. So the the plot here is that they have to go undercover at a college. To infiltrate a drug ring, infiltrate the dealers, find the suppliers. Um, that's exactly what they do again, except that it takes them to some different places now that they're in college. And this time around, it's uh, Channing Tatum's character that is sort of the popular one and, and reliving uh, his glory days. And it's, uh, it's, Jonah Hill? it's Jonah Hill, again, whose name keeps leaving my head. It's Jonah Hill who kind of like gets ostracized and feels like he's being left out and you know, but they have they have new gags, they have a fresh take, and I like that they're making fun of filmmaking in general, not just their own like franchise. Like, there's a great joke in here where they think one of the kids is the is the drug supplier, and he's like, "What's that tattoo on your arm?" And he goes, "Oh, this it's uh, it's my high school's mascot. We were the Centerville Red Herrings." <laughs> and there's and there's so many little like there's another part where Channing Tatum like meets this uh, this other player on the team, and they kind of become best bros. And he drops a Q-tip onto the guy's sandwich. He's like, oh, I got my Q-tip on your meat sandwich. It's like a it's like a meat cute. It's like a meat cute. <laughs> it's just like, you're making fun of actual filmmaking concepts. I love that. It's hilarious. It's incredibly clever the way it's put together. I think that even you disdainers out there, like I only watch the films that come out on art labels, are actually going to get a kick out of this film. Yeah. It's pretty damn smart. It only pretends to be really stupid which is gonna be enough for people who just want to watch a stupid movie yeah but that's the thing is like it is really smart under the surface it's you a smart come <laughs> it's a smart comedy going undercover as lowbrow it is and the lowbrow humor works and the smart stuff works yeah very it's much just so. so good ah yeah, I love and the that. ending oh my god the t the ending okay, credit sequence the best credit and like end credit jokes Ever. Yeah. I, mean, I don't I can't even think of anything that comes close. So to this. fucking funny. So funny. Oh my god. Yeah, this is this is a win all the way around. Highly, 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 highly recommended. Uh you could you could definitely make the case that this is in fact better than the first film, when which when we're talking about comedy sequels, is fucking unheard of. Yeah. And, you know, these guys are so good together, why wouldn't you want to watch it again with the audio comedy, which has both the directors and, and then Chan Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum, who are indeed are doing a very funny, uh, like, cursing, having running joke commentary. There's a, a whole ton of deleted and extended scenes. Uh, there's a, a look at sort of like the directors and the cast talking about the sequel process. There's a look at the differences between college and high school, which is very much a key, like sort of like joke thing inside of this, like how like, oh, it's not going to be just like it was before. Cause 
now it's college and these kids are actually kind of serious. Uh, there's, <laughs> I love this there's one called Janning and Jonah, uh, which just talk, takes a look at their screen, uh, screen chemistry together. There's a fu- supplement about all the new people that are in this film, which there are quite a few, uh, look at cast imp- improving throughout the shoot. So, you know, that it, most comedies have that sort of thing now. Uh, there's, I didn't get to watch this. Don't cut yet. An extended sequence in multiple angles. The, the thing you really want to, check out here is called the dramatic interpretation of 22 jump street. Um, which the premise is that like they've, they've recut it to make it look like an actual crime film, a buddy, like a buddy comedy or a, a buddy crime film, like a serious film because they were told, quote, they don't tra- buddy comedies don't translate well overseas. <laughs> Fucking hysterical. And then, and then a lot more stuff. So yeah, it's I mean, jam packed. This is worth your money. Any which way you look at it. And by the time we get to 28 jump street, maybe there'll be a good box set of this too. I, I, I do as much as the joke towards the end is like the movies keep going. I kind of hope this is the last. See, one. and that's the brilliance of this is the whole time we're like, wouldn't it be stupid if they did? I kind of want to see him do that. <laughs> Damn it! See, they almost can't now. Yeah, because of that. <laughs> and I'm kind of glad. I'm like, you know what? You got you. You know, it's you must have had like this is the unicorn of comedy sequels right here. Like, don't push it. Yeah, don't spoil the water. You did some the unthinkable. Move on. Yeah, absolutely. Put them together again in another film with, like, you know, their chemistry. A totally different movie. In fact, how funny would it be if they went to another bad 80s show and cast those two as the leads? Holy shit. With with Miller and Lord doing it. I'm like, oh, dude, that's the way you keep L.A. Law, the movie. Guys. Yeah, maybe not L.A. <laughs> <laughs> but if there are two guys who could do it, it'd be Lord and Miller. No, it's like, uh, what are the two guys that used to? Oh, Riptide. Oh, my You're God. Two of the dudes who, like, for no reason at all, always end up in their speedboats. It's like all crime involves chasing people in a boat. If they ever do the <laughs> non- uh, Michael Mann version of Miami Vice. Just call these two guys. There you go. Uh, so we're going to move on to something we're less excited about, and that's Into the Storm. What are you talking about? This is like the best movie. This is my pick of the week. No, it's not. <laughs> you're, well, you're lying. It, you're lying, Christopher. It, 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 I can't hold it. <laughs> you can't do it with a straight face. Look, you really disliked this film. I did. I only kind of dislike this film. Wow. Yeah. So obviously we have very divergent opinions on it. <laughs> from mean, meh to meh. Yeah, yeah no, I, mean, you were, I think you were actually kind of angry about it, and I was like... I don't remember being angry, I just remember being just like, why the fuck did we waste our time on that thing? Whereas I was like, you know, in terms of like just visual, visual spectacle, I gotta hand it to it that I was entertained. It's not a good movie, yeah. you know, and uh, I didn't feel that it was often insulting my intelligence. The, the, the one thing that really felt insulting to me is like the... the the principal of the school who for no reason whatsoever is like the, the mayor in Amity or of Amity Island. Who's like, you know, there's a tornado coming. Ah, whatever. We're going to have graduation outside. It's like, there's a tornado. Could, ah, whatever. You, you fucking live in, scientist. You live in tornado country. Seriously. And apparently <laughs> like God is pissed off that, that, that at that principal, cause he sends all the tornadoes to this one town over and over and over getting, getting cornholed by tornado after tornado. It's like hubris, bitch. Roll the dice. <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> if characters that actually talk like that in the movie, I might've liked it more. If characters that actually said those, maybe things. it's got the commentary by God. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> See what I did here is I wanted them to lose all hope. So I killed that guy uh, with a fire tornado. This is Stephen Quayle's come off of like working as second unit director for James Cameron. So he's used to doing, bigger films but his last 
directorial film before this was Final Destination 5. Uh, so he obviously is kind of taking a slow road into A-listing. I would say it's a very <laughs> slow road when the biggest star in your movie is Matt Walsh from The Daily Show. Yeah, and, like, if there's a big problem with characters here, it's really Matt Walsh, who they're playing as, like, the head tornado chaser. I mean, this is, like, parallel universe of Twister. Oh, it's so it's rips not, off Twister, left and except right. Except where it's not an entertaining movie to watch. Yes. You know? Yes. Um, and, and Matt Walsh is such a douche. He's, like, he's Ahab chasing his great white whale except you never get like with uh, where it's with bill paxton you get the enthusiasm you get the importance of it you get that it's for science mm. you, you, you're with him you want him to do this matt walsh you just want the dude to drink it off in a bar somewhere and calm down he, you know? he starts off as the carrie elway's character from twister yeah and then they try and force you into thinking he's changed into the bill paxton character but it's completely unearned yeah completely unearned and of course my big 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 gripe with this movie and i will never let this go they establish that this is a tiny tiny little town in like iowa or kansas but then there's a shot of the tornadoes ripping apart an airport that has at least like four terminals yeah why would that be and i'm like who what tiny town in in iowa has a major metropolitan airport Yeah, 747s flying around you're like yeah i'm pretty sure that wouldn't be there yeah it it just reminded me so much of the michael bay school of action which is just pick stuff up and throw it it doesn't even matter just pick it up and throw it i remember it was like the when we reviewed this with all the other things that were like no, implausible with this. That was the one. That was that the one that broke me. Stuck in your craw. It was because, like, seriously? At that point, I was like, this sucks, but I'm going to hold on. Maybe it'll still be fun. Maybe it'll still. And then at that moment, I was like, no, I'm done with you. <laughs> Fuck you, movie. <laughs> you have broken me. I still had fun with it. In fact, I actively liked the relationship between the two teenage kids who kind of liked each other, but oh, really yeah, established yeah. it. That and were bad. trapped in a flooding barn. That was a cool sequence, and I liked the, the sort of stuff going on with their parents as well. There's like, there was a dynamic there that was interesting. It never really plays out in any sort of organic way, and the dialogue's not terribly well written, but it at least made me kind of like some of the characters in here, which is more you can say for a lot of films like this that get shot out <laughs> into the cinematic landscape of yeah. disaster movies. Although I will say this movie kind of felt shot out in that, like, it was... As soon as it appeared in theaters, much like a tornado, it just blew right through and no one talked yeah, about it, it again. Gone. So, yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> not, not much in the way of special features. Just uh, there's like a 11 minute thing about uh, tornado fires or tornado files, which is like, you know, live real tornado stories. There's another thing about uh, real. Uh, the, it says Titus, the ultimate storm chasing vehicle, which is looks at the tank thing that's in here. That right off the bat, you go, knowing how strong a tornado is. Is there any vehicle that would be big enough to make a fucking difference? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. You know, and that's... It's blowing around 747s. You just showed us that. That's what I don't understand, though, is with a movie like this that's all about tornadoes, and there are, like, there's a, a, a litany of shows that are all about chasing tornadoes. How are there not many special features on this disc? Yeah. Like, you have an entire back catalog of Storm Chaser Must videos. the same company. Yeah, but somebody you, somebody has to own the rights to some of those videos. Like, it's just crazy to me. Yeah, it's becoming a genre in and of itself. I mean, next, it'll be the next Muppets film, probably. Muppets the, in a tornado. <laughs> the Muppets go to Oz. You just eventually. see the, the puppet handlers like flying along underneath <laughs> with their arms stuck. At, like, okay, can we get down now, please? Kermit has got to capture footage from the inside of a tornado, and no one really understands his drive. Blown away. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that was into the storm. We talked about it. We have fulfilled our obligation. There you go. And now we're gonna. Move, oh God. Now we're gonna move on to Sin City, a dame to kill for. It just gets better and better this week. Now this is my pick of the week. Stop it. You don't mean that. No, you're like the boy who cried pick of the week. I know. It's no one's great. gonna believe you when you actually pick a pick of the week. You're right. You're right. This is not my pick of the week. This is my uh, pick to drop in the dumpster of the week. <laughs> I, I think that this makes Into the Storm look kind of like a masterpiece. I hate that I have to agree with you on that. Yeah, it's um, been too long since they made the first one, first off. Ten I'll years. Ten years. Ten years. When they were originally talking about starting production on the second one immediately. I, I know there's a whole story behind why. I just don't really care no. <laughs> anymore. And the truth is, is that even though I think the original material this is based on it isn't half bad, it's not certainly not the strongest stuff Miller, Frank Miller ever wrote, but it's not bad. This is like a wild misunderstanding of what made the first film work and what makes that material work. It feels, admittedly, it does feel like Robert Rodriguez, no question, who's not a great storyteller anymore. Yeah. But. Like, Sin City was the last watchable Robert Rodriguez film, in, in my estimation. This is, like, almost a satire of it. You know? Yeah, it does kind of feel like self-parody, but a completely unintentional self-parody. And one of my biggest problems with it is that I actually really like the first Sin City. And I know yeah. it's, it's... But it's weird that since it's released, it's had the opposite of a cult effect. Like, it has... It's gained a detractor audience that grows bigger and bigger every year. And I am not really... I don't really understand why... But one of the things I really liked about it is it felt balanced. All of the stories felt like they were intertwining at just the right points, and each one was given its own weight and its own uh, appropriate amount of screen time. This one is not balanced whatsoever. It is one huge story with two little filler things to make it an anthology, kind of. And it's like, while the Eva Green story is kind of interesting, the other two that are tacked on are not at all. And I... and. I don't know if they changed anything about the way that those other stories were written in the comics, but if they didn't, then the the one with Joseph Gordon-Levitt particularly is such a shit story. Right. Just such a shitty story. Like, yeah, it doesn't think, go anywhere. I think two of these were from the comics and two weren't. Oh, okay. But, um, yeah, I mean, you've got the return of Marv, played by Mickey Rourke again, who ain't doing anything else. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, because these stories, they all intertwine. They're like, oh, that guy's dead. Doesn't matter. We'll just tell an earlier story with right. him. Right. Um, uh, where he's still protecting Jessica Alba's character. Uh, okay, fine. Nancy, yeah. uh, um, then you've got the long bad night, which is the one you're talking about with Joseph Gordon-Levin as a gambler who gets on the wrong side of Powers Booth, Senator Rourke, and acts like a complete moron, quite yeah. frankly, yeah. where you lose all sympathy for him because you're like, you're an idiot. And then just when you think the story's building to something, it's like, oh, never mind. It's and, like, okay, and then you've well, got sucks. A Dame to Kill For, which takes pl- uh, place years before the first film, where you've got Dwight McCarthy, played by Josh Brolin, who has got, you know, he, he has real anger problems and real drinking problems. And he's tried to put it all behind him. But a girl comes back into his life, played by Eva Green, who oh, apparently was like his kryptonite. Oh, and she's which I like, can understand. help me, my husband is well, this wealthy guy, uh, Damien Lord, played by Martin... Sock, Sockus? I don't know. Sockus? Yeah. <laughs> or like, Bosnian or something. Anyway, uh, 
and he's really abusive. She won't let me go. Uh, his uh, his manservant Manute played this time by Dennis Haysbert instead of by Michael Clark Duncan. Michael Clark Duncan because you it's hard away. to act after you're dead. Yeah, um, tends to be. Yeah, <laughs> is like you know keeps him from keeps me from going too far. In fact, to that point, Manute shows up, beats the holy hell out of Dwight, and says, "Okay, don't come back for." Her. Well, of course, it's. You know, it's Sin City, which means it's a hyper-stylized exaggeration of noir, so it's not hard to figure out where this story is going. Yeah. Uh, I will tell you, if you like seeing Eva Green naked, you are going to actually probably get almost sick of it by the end of this movie. I disagree. No? I was like, there's a point, I'm like, why are you still naked? Because they knew the rest of the movie was shit, and they were giving us something to live for fair enough, at that fair point. Enough. It's I, I gotta say this, I was actually on set for this. Uh, I got to do a set visit for this film, and she, the, like, the scene that we saw getting filmed was just her coming into the room and sitting next to Josh Brolin. All she did, literally, the whole time we were there, is walk into a doorway surrounded by green, like the green screen, and it was just like, we were still just like, there she is, oh my god, she's right there. Because she is, she just does have that presence, and she's so, like, ethereally beautiful. Oh, but, I think she's a wonderful actress. But she can't, but even she can't save this, I guess, is no. the point I'm driving and at. And the worst part is the one Nancy's Last Dance, which is Jessica Alba still pissed that uh, Bruce Willis died taking on Senator Rourke in the previous film. And she's getting drunk and kind of deciding maybe she's going to try and kill him herself. And they get Bruce Willis in to play the ghost of Bruce Willis, basically. You yeah. Know, like Very fitting making, for his career right now. I, well, I was making, you couldn't help but make Sixth Sense jokes, too. You know? <laughs> uh, uh, and has, serves no purpose. There's no point for him being there. But it is a role he could film in a day. Right. So I'm so sure they're very happy about that. Only fucking, had to pay him a million dollars. I am like, it's getting to the point where I'm actively hating Bruce Willis. Yeah, kind of am too. Because it's like, dude, you're so fucking lazy. Just stop acting. Yeah. Just quit. If it's really not worth it to you, like for less than a million dollars, then don't be in movies. If or it's such... Here you go. Wait till a script comes along you're actually excited about and then do it for a reasonable price because you're obviously richer than you'll ever have to worry about anything again for the rest of your life. And he's ruining and, movies now. And like, now you're just ruining... Yeah, you're yeah. pumping out shit because people will make shit that they know will make its money back because your face is on the cover. True. That's just like... That's somebody who's disrespecting... The, the art and the craft of filmmaking altogether by what they're doing. I agree 100%. And there's nothing else in this movie that really, like, it's got a great cast, but not there's not a lot of great performances to be found. And I'm sorry, this movie might as well have been sponsored by Smuckers, because the blood in this film just looks like jelly. It looks awful. The the over-stylized like CG blood looks fucking atrocious and, in this movie. this time around, they get really carried away with the whole, only these things will be colorized. They overuse it, and yeah. you get sick of it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and there's like, uh, there's some bonus features on here, but none of them are particularly interesting, quite frankly. There's a thing about the makeup effects, which I love Greg Nicotero, but I still think... The, even in the first one, I thought some of the makeup effects were pretty shoddy. Like the way Dwight looks was always like, oh, come on. Yeah, I think <laughs> I, th I think it's a very interesting challenge to try and have to come up with makeup designs that are then going to be in this weird faux black and white with color. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think I think that's really a challenge, and I don't think they gave him much to work with. Yeah, I don't know. This is just – it's a mess. It feels I – mean, and it was – I believe it was even co-written again by Frank Miller – yeah, it's, it's co-directed by yeah, Frank Miller. Co-directed. It's written flat out by Frank Miller, and I think that we're starting to see what some of the problem is here. Because if you've seen uh, the Saint, which was the basically the movie that they were like, okay, uh, 
you know, you, we, we made a lot of money off, off Sin City. So now we'll let, we, we think Frank Miller can make his own movie. The spirit, then, the spirit. I'm sorry. I was like, the wait, the, yeah, yeah, the spirit. Yeah. 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 Uh, then you know that that was a bad idea to have him be actively involved in any way with film because he's a lunatic. He's uh, he's a little cuckoo bananas. Yeah. He's a little cuckoo bananas. Yeah. This is, this is, I've never seen the spirit, but I can't imagine it's, Oh, it's, it's like, it's gotta be about this bad. Right? It's you'll watch it believing that something is wrong in your own brain. Like it can't, po- like the things you're seeing can't possibly, you're hallucinating. Obviously you've got to be hallucinating. There's no way they would actually put that in a movie. There's no way a studio would actually green light this. So you start like questioning your own sanity instead of the, the filmmaking prowess of Frank Miller. You're like, no, no one's this bad. Like there has to be something wrong with me. It's the comic movie that will make you believe a brain can die. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, well, moving on from a movie kind of based on comic books to a documentary based on a comic book character, Legends of the Night, a.k.a. We Are Batman, which yeah. I think is a much better title, quite frankly. You know, here's the thing about this. I think that if someone comes to this really not that interested in comic books or Batman, they're probably going to blow it off, and probably rightfully so. It's not what you call well extremely well-made documentary. It's for people who genuinely love the shit out of Batman and superhero comics, have themselves formative experiences for how comic books and, you know, you know, how reading superhero comics made them want to be a better person. Mm-hmm. And it sort of like engages with that in the, with the viewer in the sense of like, Oh, patting you on the back. Aren't you good? It's, it's more about how the character has inspired people in one form or another. And yeah, yeah like, like you said, I don't think it's a, it's a, incredibly made documentary. I think there are some shortcomings here and there, but one of the things I really do like about it is that they, they spend a lot of time talking to Michael Uslan, who when I was in college, I heard about, cause I went to college in Indiana and not Indiana university, but, uh, but I heard about this class at Indiana university about comic books taught by this guy, Michael Uslan. And I was like, who the hell is that? So I started looking up. I was like, Oh, he's produced all these Batman movies. Oh, he's producing the new one coming out. Something called Batman begins. And he has produced pretty much every Batman movie that's ever yeah, come out. There would be no modern Batman films without this guy. Correct, because he is the one that took it around all the studios in the 80s and tried to get somebody to bite on it. And the argument kept being, no one is going to take comic book movies seriously. There's no money to be made. It's hilarious to even think about now. And you get to watch his like journey as well, like yeah. how he's gone from not being taken very seriously to being becoming a prof- the first ever paid professor in comic book studies. Yeah, the reason I got interested in him is because I found out that he was teaching a class at IU that was called Comic Books as Cultural Mythology. Mm. And that kind of just that idea and looking into some of the curriculum that he was teaching kind of changed my opinion on comics, to be honest. Like it kind of... I started to think in the, in that context and I was like, wow, he's actually got a really, he's got a really good point. There's something more to this than just cheap entertainment. And this definitely makes the argument as, as many people have before that comic books are the modern age's mythology in the sense that this is where we find our moral characters to draw from both negative ones. Cause certainly there's lots of those. And just like in mythology, there's lots of ones like that in comics that succeed despite being assholes and positive ones, your Superman's, your Batman's or what have you's. Uh, this is really trying to focus on Batman, of course. And I think it, it also, you know, you, you get all warm and fuzzy inside when you watch people who dedicate their lives to enormous acts of altruism. And you get to follow around some people like that. This one guy who dresses up like, like in a really elaborate Batman suit and he's got the 66 Batman car. Yeah. I mean, clearly he has money to burn and he spends all his time going to hospitals and helping out six kids and education programs. And you're like, Hey man, good for you. 
You know, who, who, who's not going to like shake that guy's hand and go, you're awesome. And you're really watching these kids, you know, who are young enough to believe, wow, it's actually Batman, you right. know, be affected by Batman coming in and giving them good advice. Uh, also, of course, everybody knows the story about the little kid in San Francisco, I believe. The Batman was. kid. Yeah. yeah. Who did the make a wish and the whole city pitched in to make him have a Batman adventure for the day, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, and there's, there's not enough coverage of that in here, quite frankly. Um, I think that's what they were selling this with more than anything else, but yeah. it's neat to at least see some of it. You know, yeah. he's a good example. I think that. Maybe they some of these stories are not as interesting as others. Is like this kid on a college campus who's like nineteen, yeah, doing in a really crappy outfit, and you're like, yeah, this isn't that interesting. I think that's my problem overall with this documentary. Is it feels like that they started with Michael Uzan and the Batman kid, and went, how are we going to fill this in the middle? And they have reached out to some people whose stories are very inspiring, but quite frankly, like it could have been anything, any other character that inspired. Like the arguments they make for like why Batman specifically. Uh, inspired this person or that person. It's like, yeah, but that could that quality could apply to any superhero. You're kind of yeah. stretching it a little bit. And while their stories individually are pretty inspiring, it just it it feels very slight. It feels like a very tenuous connection to Batman in general. Which is why I wish they had kept the original title, "We Are Batman," instead of "Legends of the Night," which makes it seem like it's going to go in depth about the Batman character, the which one, it doesn't really. There's the one woman in here even that has. Like her whole story about being crippled and now she works for the Mary Sue, which is like, you know, I am pro-feminist, but that site even pushes my buttons sometimes. You're like, guys, you're looking too hard at these things. You need to take a little step back. Uh And the whole thing feels like a, oh, well, the Mary Sue just paid for part of this more than it had yeah. anything to do with Batman yeah. during that whole sequence. I was like, why is this even in here? I yeah. mean, I get that, like, it's cool to be inspired by stuff and find hope and move ahead. But honestly, if she was inspired by comic books, it's mentioned in passing. It is. It's mentioned <laughs> at the very end of the segment. And it's yeah. like, come on, guys. Like, stick to – I know you have – like, it's like they had a very limited amount of material to work with. And they tried to stretch it into a whole documentary. I mean, you couldn't go and get interviews with people who played Batman. I mean, Adam West will talk for hours about his appearances as Batman and talking to kids and doing uh, uh, charity events. Seriously, you're not going to talk to Adam West? You're no. not going to talk to Michael Keaton, who did similar things? I. It seems like this was a great idea on paper, and they had some great stuff to do it on. Get that footage, great. And then show it around to get more money to finish the fucking film. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely agree. And you know what? It, I think part of the problem is that, like, when they start talking to the people who actually dress up as Batman, you know, the 19-year-old on campus, I'm like, yeah, but you remember long ago and far away when we reviewed a documentary called Superheroes? about people who, like, literally go out every night and try and thwart crime and, you know, in all these various cities. Like, that feels a lot more impactful even without Batman than this feels with Batman. Yeah, and that kid is just a is a, a pale shadow of what the guy we've already seen who does the super elaborate Batman thing. is like, why are you showing us this guy who doesn't do it even a 1% as well as the other guy? Yeah. Find something different. Yeah, I mean, I think this documentary's heart is firmly in the right place. Sure, absolutely. I just, I think they didn't really have enough to make a documentary, but they really wanted to. Yeah. So they stretched it, and I think the, it wears thin, and you can you can see that. Yep. So, all right, well, that was, I'm just going to call it We Are Batman, because I like that title better. Uh, <laughs> Legends of the Night is what they're selling it on. Yes, and, and actually, we have a special treat for you now. Uh, we are going to review True Blood Complete with Mr. Johnny Neal. 
And I'm here with a master funny man, Johnny Neal, formerly of the TV Dudes. And I want to do bad things to you. What? <laughs> That's just a thing I say. That's your catchphrase? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. How's that working out with the, the female interviews that you do? I have a <laughs> lot of restraining orders going on, Chris. <laughs> a big file of them. But they're framed and they're hanging on the wall. They're, they look well, nice. Well, some of them have some good autographs. Yeah. You know, you, you never know who you're going to run into. <laughs> well, we're here. I brought you on because you have seen this show that I have barely uh, barely touched the outsides of, uh, and which is surprising because the the creator, Alan Ball, who made the show True Blood, also made Six Feet Under, which was one of my favorite shows ever. Yeah. Just loved it, loved it, loved it. And I meant to sit and watch True Blood, and somehow it just never really happened. And now it's over. Seven years of True Blood, and they've put out a complete box set on Blu-ray where it's all, here's the whole thing in one little box you put on your shelf. There you go. You're done. Go watch some vampires in Suki Stackhouse and have some fun. Seven glorious crimson-filled years of True Blood. Crimson-drenched. Crimson-drenched, dripping, doing bad things with you. (laughs) Years of True Blood. I love True Blood. I loved it. Okay, here's a little history of me. I lived overseas for the first year that it was on. So when I got back, I was like, oh, what is this True Blood I've heard so much about? <laughs> oh, my God, was I sucked in uh, from the from the beginning. I absolutely loved it. I think it's one of the most fun soap operas ever put out on television. It's, it's very much a gothic soap opera. Anyone who looks at it as something like you're trying to split an atom with the intellectual property of it right. is, is really it, missing it, it the was, point. He was definitely not reaching as high as he was with Six Feet Under. Right, yeah. He yeah. was going very different, like almost camp type of thing. And, and yet he hit some really deep emotional notes for me. Uh, a, a lot about mortality, a lot about identity, a lot about loyalty. And like every HBO show, he introduced us to a great great pantheon of new actors new up-and-coming actors and boobs and boobs very <laughs> sexy very sexy show it was like you know you you just kind of kept a diary of of like when is deborah ann wool gonna drop that top <laughs> oh was there one actress who just held that out? was jessica you got a little side stuff and you got some pretty hot negligee action but, but not never actual nudity never any actual nudity. Oh, man. but uh, now to be fair she was uh, a minor when she got turned, so you know, oh, so even though changed. she's not in real life, it still feels a little weird. Well, you know, if if I had to rationalize, I'd say it felt weird. Yeah, <laughs> that's my. Uh, <laughs> but it, it didn't feel weird, you know, wanting to see. see a I felt weird seeing that Anna Paquin, who plays Suki Stackhouse, the lead character, got naked a lot in it because for me, she's always going to be this young girl that was in movies early in her career that I <laughs> so saw. So it's going to be the little piano. Yeah. The Oscar winner from the piano. Exactly. I'm like, I don't want to see her naked. What the hell's wrong with you? Oh, yeah, she's like 30. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, what I thought was weird was that then she married her co-star, and then so she's like naked with her husband on screen. I'm like, eh. And then there'd be another Steven? guy. I'm Steven like, Stephen Moyer? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Who's and like the main vampire who's the... Bill Compton. Yeah. He's yeah. he's the... uh uh uh, what's his name? 
from Twilight. <laughs> oh, he would be. He's a sympathetic, or... nice vampire that loves Edward, the human team girl. Edward, Edward yeah. 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 So I was be... team uh, guy driving the van who almost hit Bella. <laughs> now, now, you know who I was? I was team Mighty Redwoods. I'm the old guy who's watching these young people. Going through that same, I want to be one of the cool kids drama. Yeah. That <laughs> they always like, go through. It's like, oh, did you see that rare bird that just flew by in that scene? That's Johnny's take on that. <laughs> oh my God, get your glasses. And I was, okay, does this beautiful young girl want to hang out with the stoner werewolves or go with the cool I intellectual? With, I would have hung out with the stoner werewolves up until the point that I realized that they really are like most heavy stoners, really get irritating after They're a while. never going to drop the flannel and leave yeah. that town. You're like, yeah. okay. Hey, you know what? I just got this Woody Allen movie. Do you want to watch it with me? <laughs> well, I don't want to do that. Vampires love Woody Allen. <laughs> yeah. They're they, all about the... Yeah. They are all about the Woody yeah, Allen. But they can't just sit back and enjoy a Cheech and Chong movie either. So, Or, you know, an episode well, of the Flintstones. I bet they could on True Blood. Probably. If which they, is what we're actually talking if about. If they had a little bit of fairy blood in them. All right. So talk a little bit about what this show is even about. Okay. True Other blood. than vampires and... Boobs. True Blood starts in the middle, which is kind of interesting. It starts on the premise that scientists have synthesized a human blood replacement. So think about that for a second, which are words that I hate to say because it assumes that you're not thinking. And I I apologize. (laughs) Wake up out there. (laughs) So imagine if a group of people, a whole population whose very existence denies the laws of physics, who are hundreds of years old, maybe thousands, and have had to live in the dark and and be predators for their entire history, are suddenly able to go, hey, you know, let's can... just be normal. I can just buy off-the-rack stuff and and communicate with people. Sorry about that whole killing all those people thing. All that, all those myths that have built up around my hungers. And... Well, can they do the stuff like turn into stuff and everything like that? They don't turn into bats. They uh, they can see themselves in mirrors, and they don't have religious um, problems. They don't have cross problems. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, religious problems. Yeah, <laughs> they're not yeah, they religiously have, averse. They're not hung up on any kind. Of I'm more religiously averse than they are. <laughs> Uh, they they actually bring a lot of religion into it, that there's an alternate Bible that has the vampires in, in the Bible. Any um, culture that's around for long enough is eventually going to develop its own spiritualism. Yeah. Well, and that's another one of the big notes in it that, you know, and there's a, a lot of fundamental Christianity brought into it of the, the, the daylight. Now, what they do keep. Is that sunshine is bad. That still fucks them up. Yeah, and and that is something that I really appreciate. That to me, to me, if you have a superpower, you have to have a super weakness. Sure, yeah, which is why Superman's boring. Yeah, because he has a very like, you know, tiny little weakness that's hard to find. Yeah. Right, a so, meteor. How many like, meteors of yeah, kryptonite are there? You pretty much have to be a billionaire yeah. to be able to even think about taking on Superman. Or or magic. You yeah. have to have magic. Which one, yeah, which once <laughs> again. You have that. And, and have the kind of magic that can still fuck with Superman. Yeah. Yeah, like right. no like, oh, I'm going to light this candle. Right. Duh, no. Superman. Oh, Jesus, don't do that. What oh. the fuck? Well, what is with all those those different colored handkerchiefs coming out of your sleeve? <laughs> no, not, a, it not a rabbit in the hat. I oh. broke out in hives. Pigeons. Pigeons. <laughs> Great Caesar's ghost. <laughs> 
<laughs> but we were talking about True Blood. Yeah. Sorry. So the show begins with this basically vampires coming out of the closet. Oh, and they all still have to sleep in coffins at dark. They have to return. Why to do they have coffins. to be in coffins? Can't they uh, sleep in like a vault or something? Well, they're 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 some kind of a makeshift. Uh, Coffin or um, does it have to have like tomb. dirt from their home area? Or Not anything, necessarily, like in a but it does seem way. to need to be uh, sealed in some way. Huh. You know, like some kind of a closed-in uh, vault or tomb-like thing. Now they don't have to, but if they like, if they're awake during the night or, or during the day, but out of the light, they'll start to they get weak and they'll cry tears of blood. And they'll bleed out of their ears. Yeah, I do that too in reverse, though. So. <laughs> you do. He does. Yeah, I was up yeah. all night. Jesus, what's wrong with you? Nothing. I'm just tired. That but there's happened. blood coming out of your face. Yeah, that's what happens. Yeah, well. you Wait till you turn 40. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you turn 4,000? <laughs> yeah, true. So uh, there's a lot about, like, in, in a later episode, uh, Salome is in it. You know, Salome, from, Salome with John the Baptist. Head, yeah, yeah, you know, the like one who dance of the seven veils and yeah. all that. All right, so she shows up. So you know, for some reason, she's a vampire. She's a vampire, and okay. and you know her thing is that uh, there's been a hierarchy of vampires abusing vampires. I mean, there's there's also that. There's also the notion that uh, there is a, a political system within the vampire. So there's a caste system that is starting to have problems in yes. the vampire society. Yes, very much so. And and when they come out into the light, or not into the light, but into the public, you know, things... Okay, here's the flip side. Here's the other side. I'm getting ahead of myself. Please tell it's me that to... Michael Moore doesn't turn out to be a vampire, and so he's there making little vampire documentaries. The problem with the vampire rich is... <laughs> the, thing, the thing about Michael Moore being a vampire is... I think he eats carbs. Yeah. I don't think he's an Atkins guy like a vampire. Probably not, no. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of... A lot of bread. You know, he, he would be like Couch Dracula, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but uh, the... Thank you. And uh, <laughs> the, the thing is that vampires have also been preyed upon because if you, as a non-vampire, ingest vampire blood, it is like orgasm ecstasy acid. It oh. is the greatest drug in the world. Well, that sounds like a good deal for vampires. They're like, I got a business. Yeah. So that becomes a thing. They become the prey. Once, you know, you become, once they're actually acknowledged that they exist, which is a pretty big thing for society to do. Yeah. Because, oh, by the way, vampires are real. Sorry. That vampires we, are real, y'all. Sorry we lied about that for a while. <laughs> We've been, I know, all that stuff that you've been hearing, it's, they're real. <laughs> They're real. At that point, I might start taking the whole Roswell thing seriously. I'm just saying. It's like, wait, hold on. What that else was, did you lie about? That was season six. No, that was Oh, not. for God's sake. But, uh, so, people, but, and they call that V. So, suddenly vampires, some vampires are getting really rich selling drops of blood. And others are being abducted by humans and who are others are, are being abducted them. by humans. And I got to tell you, that was uh, Stephen Root, the wonderful Stephen Root. I didn't even realize it was him, and I'm a fan. He was so good in the first episode. He plays a gay man who is turned into a vampire who trades blood to be with other gay guys, basically. That's okay. what he does. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff in this show. And uh, Jason Stackhouse, the, the, the wonderful Ryan Quantin, who is the most perfect specimen of, of like, if you had a muscle chart, you know, 
and just he would be it. It's like he has this perfect muscular body. It's amazing. He's like, the brother of Anna Quinn. He, he's the character. brother. I mean, I'm not saying that like I'm turned on by it. I'm saying it just from a good Lord. As an artist, I've taken a lot of anatomy classes. Sure. And his body is, because there's no bodybuilderness to it. It's not pumped up big. He's just amazing looking. He's like a panther or something, which is maybe why he got in with the wear panthers. One of the they're aware one of panthers. The, one of the bad sidelines. That was not a, a plot line that really panned out very well. But uh, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that must have been season four or five, is what I'm thinking. R- Ryan Quantin, yeah, something like that. Yeah, I've heard seasons one through three are pretty great. Season four and five, and maybe even six, not so great. Season seven gets better. I would say that all of them were really good. Yeah. All of them were really good. Okay. Some were better than others. Um, and every season had many, many peaks of excellence. Because the acting was great. The dialogue was great. Sometimes the storytelling went a little askew. <laughs> uh, could have used some actors a little better than they did. They had Christopher Maloney, and they never really had anything for him to do. He's such a great actor. He was such a great actor, and he was pretty much in the same room. In every scene. You and know, that's we, about it. Yeah, that was that was about it. So what would you call, like, the high point of this show? My personal high point yeah. is the... Oh, that's, 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 hard, to, that's hard to say. Um, I would say that the plot line that really hit me that uh, I don't think got enough attention was when Jason Stackhouse realized that his entire life he had been used as a sex object by powerful women. You're like, well, I could have told you that. (laughs) There was just something about that, how he kind of went, I've messed up every friendship I've ever had because I've banged every one of my friend's girlfriends. You know, like, the girls would become girlfriends with his friends just so they could end up sleeping with him. Mm. His teacher, he slept with his teacher as a kid, you know, and and uh, she, you know, it was one of those things that the the more we get into the modern day, you kind of go, oh, teachers are sleeping with male students, and people are kind of starting to go, you know, that's really not as cool as it sounds when you're 15, because you're really kind of messing with that 15-year-old's of sense course. of himself. Even so, though, you know how people say white people problems? This is like, I don't know, Hemsworth brother problems yeah. or something. Yeah, you're right you're there. like, oh, wow. You're right there. But <laughs> it, it, I, I guess the reason it really hit me was because they had made him to be such a dullard. Such a dumb himbo right. for the whole show, you know. To have him have a sort of like epiphany of any sort is actually really fascinating. Yeah, and like I've really kind of shit on every relationship all because of my dick, you know. Like right. th- that was a big deal to me, um, and it bothered me in, in a little bit in that nobody really paid attention to it when he had this this epiphany. Nobody cared, which was kind of like how. We all inflate ourselves and think everybody's going to care about our problems. Yeah. Um, the points about the show that I really liked, one of one of the high points was when, okay, Sookie, Sookie is the star. Sookie Stackhouse is the star. She, you find out later on that she's part fairy, which is funny because that's been, uh, uh, what's great is when she says, I'm a fairy. 
How fucking lame. <laughs> right. Of all that you could be a werewolf, a ghost, a ghoul, a mummy, all this stuff that sounds a lot cooler, but no, you're a fairy. You're a fairy. Yeah. Oh, so fairies okay, put out Oberon, a... get the fuck out of here. <laughs> fairies put out a pheromone, thank you. Pheromone? And, uh, that the vampires smell. Ah. And everybody loves the way those fairies smell. And their blood is like what V is to mortals. Oh, boy. Then, to so, vampires. So the fairies have been hunted to extinction. So this kind of explains much. why the vampire was so drawn to her in the first place. The vampires are drawn to her, and she likes the vampires because as a fairy, she's a mind reader without wanting to be. Okay. So she picks up everybody's everybody's thoughts all the time, and half of them are thinking, you little slut. <laughs> <laughs> so she likes the vampires because she can't read their minds. Oh, I see. Right? And yeah. it's like a relief. Well, they like her. Because she, she smells like awesome. Because yeah. she smells awesome. Yeah. So in an early episode, what was cool, it was, and, and she, and, J she and, and Jason are orphans living with their grandmother. So does that make him a fairy too? No, he's okay. not. And she's only half fairy. Okay. And it didn't, it didn't catch on with him. And that was another thing. He's like, I didn't even get that, you know, like <laughs> my sister got superpowers and I didn't even get that. All I could do is fuck. That's not the worst superpower. No, I, yeah. yeah. I'm tell I know I'm looking at him going, yeah, talk about Hemsworth brother problem. Yeah. But, uh, so there was a really cool episode where she and Bill become friends and intimate and Bill is a civil war veteran and they're in Louisiana, right? In Bontop, Louisiana. <laughs> and, she brings him to the daughters of the Confederacy, which is her grandmother and their little coffee clatch <laughs> where they talk about history. And he comes in and, you know, this is one of those things where you go, wouldn't that be cool to have this kind of living history repository? Yeah. That he's talking to these ladies and he's like, I served with your great uncle, you know, and, and he was a good man. And, you know, and she's like, well, did he have a, so he's very charming to these ladies, and they're interested, and they're they're old ladies. They're over it, right? They're not worried about him being a vampire. You know right. what I mean? Right. You know, like you hit a certain age where you're kind of like, like I, I don't care about anything anymore. You know, <laughs> like whatever. It's gonna play out how it's gonna. Play it's gonna out. play. Yeah, exactly. So they're kind of at that point. They don't have a, a critical judgment on him or anything, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he. They say, well, did he have a I know that he was killed in the battle of, you know, Skeeter Dick or whatever. And, and, you know, what, did he have a good death? And, and he just looks at her and he goes, there's no such thing as a good death. You know, it's like a lot of these vampires are exhausted. There's, uh, Godric is the guy who turned, uh, the, the, the wonderful Alexander Sarsgaard. Who oh, was, wow. He's on he, this too. Yeah. He's, uh, is, is it, or is it Eric? He's Eric, 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 uh, uh, anyway, he's the, the big giant Swedish god of, of battle. Eric. Yeah, Eric, sorry. Eric Northman. He's, he's a Viking. Godric is the guy who turned him. And Godric is only in a few episodes, but he is like, you just really want more of him. Uh, and he ends up telling Eric, I don't want to do this anymore. And he walks into the sun. And he just, you know, burns up. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of subtlety in fatigue and the burdens of history. And it seems like a lot of that comes up because they don't have to live in the dark anymore. 
You know that. Well, they still have to live in the dark, but they can be public figures. I don't think that would like take away from the fatigue. You're suddenly like, wow, now I have access to all this stuff I never could do before, and like. I guess it's like to me, I've always thought the secret to immortality is embracing change. I think that I I took it that when they got the chance to say, I don't have to be a predator anymore, they went, I don't know what I am if I'm not a predator. Mm. It's been too long. I've been doing this too long. It's and hard, I don't have too to hard do to re- it redefine yourself. And not only that, but then to go, wow, if we could have had this all this time, I wouldn't have had to kill people for 2,000 years. You know, there's a certain ancient warrior. Who's not going, yeah, there's an honorable thing to this being a warrior, you know? Right. I'm not a warrior anymore. I'm just a guy who goes to 7-Eleven. Yeah. And gets a bottle of True Blood, which they really sell in (laughs) (laughs) 7-Eleven. Strangely (laughs) enough. (laughs) Uh, There there was a lot of stuff about gay rights that that it was supposed to be a metaphor for uh, gays coming out. But Alan Ball, who's gay, hated that that comparison he said that uh so are you saying that gays are vampires and deviants yeah. so uh i i love that that he's like yeah that's too easy you know he, he considered that to be a lazy comparison I, I would agree with him at this point it's been done i mean yeah. certainly like brian singer used his x-men films as a metaphor for for homosexuality he's made no secret of that it's hard right. to miss um right. and there's nothing wrong with that but why do it again yeah yeah and there is a lot of gay action in the uh, a lot of boys show. kissing, hot boys kissing each other. Yeah, well, and a lot of the vampires are kind of pansexual. Yeah, you know they're they're over it as well. They've they've kind of been here, done that over and over for a thousand years. Uh, so that's not an issue. So there are some very positive mortal gay characters. I thought you know that if you take all the supernatural stuff out of it, there were some pretty uh, uh, Nelson Ellis as as. Um, Bah, this is why I took notes. Uh, Nelson Ellis as Lafayette is one of the best characters on TV, and he's the quasi cross-dressing fry cook at the at the diner. It's only sort of cross-dressing. Yeah, I mean he wears makeup and he wears like a big okay. do rag. So it's wears... like Eddie Izzard cross-dressing type of thing, where you're like, I'm not gonna wear a big flowery summer dress, but I'm gonna wear some makeup and high heels. Yeah, I mean yeah. he he and he's you know built like a. A linebacker, you know, and uh, and and again, another great actor to be discovered through HBO. I mean, uh, HBO just kind of amazes me with the people that they find. Yeah. I, I think that's largely because they're cast out of New York, so they find a lot of stage people instead of the the LA scene. That could just be me. I, no, you might be right. Actually, I never thought about it in that way. It might be the very much the difference. They do constantly make discoveries. Of really amazing new people. <laughs> but then when you look those people up, it's like, oh, they've done this on Broadway and that on yeah. Broadway and off Broadway and they're dancers. Can't say enough about Natalie Dorman, but anyway. <laughs> from Game of Thrones? Yeah. Wow. I don't really know much about her, though. Ah, she's hot. That's all yeah. I need to well, that's all I <laughs> <laughs> She's mine, Johnny, mine. <laughs> that's on her resume. Hot. <laughs> it just um, leaves a little notation on there. It says, Dibs, Chris Cox. <laughs> <laughs> she has it notarized. Right. So, so Chris also has a collection of autographed uh, restraining orders. True, in, true. In his, uh, he has them tattooed on his arms. <laughs> so there's uh, a lot of fundamental uh, intolerance touched on with the Reverend Steve Newland. Oh, so a religious guy is the yeah. bad guy. Yeah. Which seems to be par for the course with like any sort of monsters turned good like entertainment. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. 
Um, there, so that's a big part of the second or third season. Um, I I just can't say enough good stuff about it. I can I can see where people say, oh, they've gone too far. They've gotten dumb. But I just think, you know, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree if that's if you're finding problems. If that's where it. you came from. I know Martin had told me, like, I like the show. I mean, it's always been silly, but I think, like, around season four, he started to lose interest mainly because um, – he just, I think it was just like getting into some plot lines that he just didn't care about as much. And he's like, I, he watches just like I do 30 different shows at any given time. Right, so yeah. he's like, it just didn't make the cut. <laughs> yeah. I always but, looked forward to it. I've always, I always thought it was sexy. I always thought it was fun. I did find it to be campy, but I found some real emotional points to, to be had. So you think all the way through it remains very much worth watching? Yes. Now, what about the ending? I've heard a lot of controversial stuff about like people being upset with the ending, which you hear no matter how good or bad an ending might be of any given long-running show. But what was your take on it without spoilers? I think that HBO doesn't really know how to end shows very well. Mm. I think they almost always kind of... Except Six Feet Under. Six Feet Under had a beautiful ending. Uh, The whole season was consistently really good. Uh, I would say that... uh, good chunk of the last season and uh let's say you got 10 elements going in the last season i would say six of them felt like filler but the other four were really good Hmm. Uh, i thought the resolution between bill and sookie was really good uh and i thought the very final episode the final scene it was one of those where you go okay they stuck the ending on the final scene in a it was one of those it wasn't six feet under you know, sniff. Oh, there's I so much snot. I can't even hear that fucking face. song as we're right. <laughs> But but it was very uh, melancholy, but but promising. Uh, a lot of new beginnings coming out of. So the, if somebody know. decided they wanted to make a spinoff or a series of fan fiction novels, I think that's that, been done as well. Plenty of room for that. <laughs> I honestly, I, the uh, irritating thing about a show that's so openly bisexual is like there's just nothing special about the slash fiction. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want. I want Cabin Boys. I want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I really really love the show. I. I I mean, I, I would give it five out of five stars. I wow. just absolutely loved it. And uh, there's a lot of bonus features, of course, on this. Now, the set they put out, let me warn you guys, it's not like the Sopranos set. There's no extra disc. But part of the reason that was that way is, one, Gandolfini died, and they wanted to do something like, okay, let's gather everything that still is around here somewhere and put it together into a solid set. And two, it had never been out on Blu-ray before, so it was like time to finally put this out as one box set. This, These have been coming out on DVD and Blu-ray as they've gone. So this is really just a compact collection of all the seasons just without the you know for some reason hbo likes to put out all their seasons in giant fucking box sets with lots of cardboard and flapping pieces and they're pretty but like there's a point as a collector i'm like just give me the fucking (laughs) (laughs) i just i want to be able to put it on my shelf and i mainly want the discs and i mainly want to watch the content yeah And this is for that. This is the, it's just the, it's like what, like six, not even six inches long, (laughs) six inches wide. So perfect for that reason. The seventh season, which of course is just coming out with this, uh, does have a few end of the shows like type things where they're putting together, uh, like there's a a bunch of things where they gave everybody at the cast cameras to like, okay, we'll just film shit. 
of oh, the last cool. couple of weeks. So there's assortments of that sort of thing where it's like, okay, we're going to go through and edit this all into one palatable, I guess, tear jerking for those who don't want to say goodbye type of goodbye. There's audio commentary, um, a 28 minute retrospective of interviews with every member of the cast, pretty much uh, and roundtable chats with people. I mean, there you go. Uh, and then a big character tree. It's not as uh, like called true bloodlines. It's interactive and shows everybody who connects to everything. I don't even know how you could do that based on what you're well, talking you know, about. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking of everything that I just said and I'm going, wow, I sound like, you're talking to a cat, you know, that you're squirting with a with a milk squirt gun or something. You know, there's just 500 different subjects, and it is there is a lot that happens in that six seasons, and it's pretty hard to follow a single tangent and, and say this happened at point A and this is where it ended at point Z, right, right, <laughs> and, and and not be all over the map in between. Um, again, you had some really great uh, actors, Dennis O'Hare. Uh, as as Russell Edgington, he he's just really great. The there's a notion that the vampires, the older you are, the more powerful you are. So if you're 2,000 years old, you can fly like Superman. If you're 400 nice. years old, you just have fangs. You know, it's so th- there there's that. that. So the new the new ones don't even get fangs. Oh no, they have they, okay. they get fangs. So there's some turn. advance that comes at like 25, 50. Do you get you, like a you just a you watch or something? You get <laughs> a gold watch and a testimonial. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Mostly, it just has an alarm for when it's sunset. You, you get a hundred, you don't get zits anymore. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. yeah. That's uh, that's the thing. Oh, well, that was that was one of the one of the 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 racier elements of it was that Jessica was turned when she was a virgin. So every time she has sex with somebody, oh, she she's her, a virgin her, all over her, again. I've been re- so by uh, that's that's just not couth. By the final season, she's like, yeah, you get used to it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, yeah, it doesn't hurt like it did the first time. But, you know, she's she grows into being a very powerful uh, woman and a very powerful vampire. Uh, it, I just love it. I can't even – I sound like a moron just, just babbling about <laughs> no, it. No, it's something – There's just so many – places to go about it you know it's 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 uh it, it's it's almost easier to respond to, to direct questioning than to just go <laughs> where do i begin how do i talk about it because you got shapeshifters you got ancient greek uh uh god uh you got um no aliens uh no resurrections. But you've got, obviously got werewolves. And you got were- werewolves. The werewolves are bikers, which I liked that. Uh, yeah, and and you do have that the werewolves were uh, part of uh, Hitler had tried to make an army of werewolves because the werewolves hunt vampires. Um, and if the werewolves hunted out all the vampires, it would have given Hitler uh, more power. So the vampires were anti-Nazi. So you got that going for them. That's one good thing. You I was going to say, with like announcing that vampires are real, I probably would have run with that. It's like, yeah, we fought on the resistance. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> well, there are a bunch of little elements like that. How how in, in uh, uh, Sleepy Hollow, how he'll just say, wait a minute, George Washington never told a lie. Are you kidding me? You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like they'll, they'll pop up with stuff like, like Salome, you know, she's, she's like, well, yeah, I'm. No, yeah, I'm the Salome, you know. Uh, it's a good show. It's a really, really good show. I, I enjoyed it the whole time. I looked forward to it every season. And when it ended, I was like, okay, that's a tidy little ending. I'm, it was time. You for were satisfied. I was satisfied, yeah. I didn't have this, ah, what was that, you know, at the end. I was okay with it. A lot of people had a problem. 
there was, and I think they were overreacting. I think a lot of people overreact, by the way. I think yeah. people expect a little much. Yeah. But there was... A, We're all a little entitled. Part of the trying to kill off the vampires was they introduced... Uh, they, they came up with Hepatitis V, Duh. which was to infect the vampire race and make everybody sick. So some bad guy developed died. it. Presumably. Yeah. Okay. The... the, the the Republicans, obviously. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> they don't like all that sucking. They, they had a not in the open. No. They had a they had a really great. Oh, uh, the vampires have attacked the Republican convention scene in the last season. That was I, know, I'm, I would totally root for the vampires. Oh, it was great. Yeah. It was really great. You kind of wish there could have been a little legitimate uh, star casting, you know, right? A little stunt casting for that. <laughs> but uh, there was <laughs> so. Uh, wooden wooden stakes, of course, are wooden stakes, and uh, th- those will kill vampires. So they'd come up with wooden bullets and things like that. Right. Um, but so the the big thing that people complained about in the last two seasons was that there were all these vampires that had the hepatitis, and it made them just they were savages, and they, you know. So then the people of Bon Top, their their thing was to get the vampires and the humans to pair off. So if you had a good vampire, if you fed a good vampire, if you were Hep V free and you fed a good vampire, then he would protect you because you were his food source and he would protect you from all these these ghoulish vampires that were the feral vampires. They were they were feral and they were dying. Well everybody was like, Oh, that's they're just trying to be the Walking Dead. Now you got Walking Dead vampires and it's like just go with it. Just shut up. You I mean, think The Walking Dead's the only vampire? Say, Thirty Days of Night predated of... Walking Dead. Yeah, exactly, so. exactly. So, <laughs> you know, that was one of those where people were like, "Okay, they've gone too far." And I looked at it as, as okay, we're gonna have to learn to live together. You know, it was like, okay, we're gonna have to play our hand here, and we're gonna have to learn to live together. The thing about it that made it a little bit feel a little bit squirrely was that. It was almost as if Bontemp had become this little island, and you didn't know what was going on in the rest of the world. Right. The only way for it to work was to ignore that the rest of the world wouldn't have acknowledged or gotten involved. Yeah. So that that became the thing. The bigger a show gets, the harder it is to be convincing in that. You know, and I don't mean bigger as in more popular. I mean the bigger the world of the show gets. Sure. So that was something that I would say they didn't. they weren't able to, it was like those last few episodes of Dollhouse, you know? You're kind of like, how did we get here all of a sudden? Right. When, when did... Because I didn't want to end it this soon, but you forced my <laughs> hand. I forced my hand, so I had to come up with something big. <laughs> so I liked it. I thought it was, I, I found it to be a really good metaphor for, you know, live together or die. Sure. Because that's just how it is. Um, and, and so it worked for me. And again, the... It stuck the landing in the last episode very well in a in a very sweet and melancholy way. Right on. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Johnny, for thank doing this. Thank you for having me. I definitely couldn't have done it without you. <laughs> Chris said, hey, you want to talk about True Blood? And then he said, is that burning rubber? That, <laughs> it's like, is, is Johnny, wait, Johnny, are you over? still on the phone? Knock, knock, knock. <laughs> True Blood. Let's talk about True Blood. <laughs> I brought sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> and True Blood. <laughs> and True Blood. <laughs> Let's get into this. Right on. Well, thank you so much. I hope to have more of you on the site before too much longer. We're definitely going to have you on a uh, uh, the original gentleman, which yes, is going to be happening again soon. Uh, because I know you, me, and Martin on a show together is just fun. It's, like it's solid gold. Yeah. 
<laughs> for me. Yeah, it's the most fun ever. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we'll, we, we now return you back to your uh, episode of Digital Noise already in progress. Well, thank you, Johnny Neal. And moving forward now with the other titles we have to review here, Domo Automata, Mr. Robota, Domo. I don't know. Domo. Oh, auto, uh, uh, Automa? Automa? Automata. Automa? Automa. Automata. Um, I feel like Keith Jackson right now. Oh, my mercy. Automata. I love it in the fall. In the automata. In the <laughs> you know what? This sauce is good, but it could use more automatas. Yeah. Uh, is that, I don't really actually know. Is it automata? Is it automata? I don't know. Automatopoeia. Automatopoeia. <laughs> yes, because we can't make the forgot. sound of this movie. This is uh, a science fiction film that just came out starring, starring Antonio Banderas, who uh, the film takes place in a post-apocalyptic future in which solar flares have kind of wrecked the shit out of the planet to the point that the air isn't really breathable and the oceans, for the most part, have dried up. And people are living in these, like, Blade Runner-type, uh, Judge Dredd, Mega Blocks, like, kind of yeah, situation. It's, it's a low-budget, post-apocalyptic Judge Dredd slash Blade Runner slash what-have-you world. Yeah, it, it is. It is that kind of world. But the nice thing about uh, Automata is that even though it is – it's, it, I think its budget was around $15 million, but they shot it in, like uh, – like Bos not Bosnia, but like somewhere in in uh, like a former Spain and Bulgaria. Bulgaria, that's what I was trying to remember. Bulgaria. So they they were able to stretch that fifteen million, and I I think they do a really good job with creating a very uh, engrossing science fiction world without it without it being a giant Hollywood movie. No, I mean this movie desperately does not want to be a giant Hollywood film. I mean I guess the way they're looking at it is we love those movies like like what I mean let's face it Blade Runner is clearly the biggest inspiration for this yeah. film. They're like we love this movie, we can't afford to make a film that looks like that, but we would like to keep with make it smart, make it like on the idea of like very cerebral prescient uh, sci-fi. Yeah, you socially know, conscious sci-fi. Social conscious sci-fi. Yeah. And that's fine. And uh, yeah, I, I approve. I give my stamp of approval. I <laughs> Good, think, they can make the movie now. Yeah, right? Um, <laughs> but I don't think that they quite, and this isn't really an insult towards the film, they just didn't quite make it as exciting or as interesting in terms of story as maybe they were hoping it was. Hmm. I mean, if there's a real flaw with it, it's kind of got pacing issues, it slows down where it probably shouldn't. Well, there are literally points where Antonio Banderas is wandering in the desert. Like that's yeah. literally a plot point. So I can understand that that would feel a little, you know, meandering after a while. I actually really like this movie. Okay. Um, I, I thought it was, it was toying with, it's, it's definitely one of those movies that toys with a lot of ideas we've seen in other films. Uh, it puts its own spin on it. It points, uh, you're definitely going to be reminded of things like uh, even like District Nine, sure. iRobot. Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of other sci-fi films that are going to leap to mind when you watch this. But I think the movie finds its emotional center, and I think the way that it does that is a little bit unique. And I really liked uh, Antonio Banderas's character. I thought he was uh, a guy that kind of tried to live in both worlds. And of course, it's it's all about finding the Tin Man's heart. And you call him Braid Runner. Braid Runner. <laughs> <laughs> he is kind of a braid runner. He he is yeah. a little bit. Like his job is basically to investigate. Uh you know, he's you know who he is? He is uh Sam Neill's character in In the Mouth of Madness, except instead of insurance claims on people, it's robots. Yeah. Like his whole job is to sniff out fake claims made against these robots who have two 
uh, mandates. One is that they can't harm any living creature, yeah. and the other is that they can't alter themselves. They, they can't. They can't self repair. They can't self repair. They can't yeah, upgrade themselves. If you have that, what if one of them flips a switch or something, and like they get sent sentience? And well, we all know how that ends. We've so, seen the Matrix, right? Exactly. Yeah. So automatically, there's the Asimov influence because the yeah. robots have rules. You know, that they must follow internally and it's the breaking of those rules or the evolving beyond those rules that becomes kind of the, the central conflict of the movie. Because they start finding ones that, yes, are self-repairing and, you know, it starts leading Antonio Banderas down a alley between like just abject outright hatred of ro- and distrust of robots and fear that maybe, maybe we should be afraid of the robots who seem to generally be pretty passive and well-meaning. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's not really an instant of like a robot doing something like, Oh my gosh, they're going to, they're going to hurt that guy. It's like, no, th- at no point in this movie did they seem like a threat at all. Yeah. Uh, Except so for that robot police officer in Ferguson. God damn it, Chris. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's topical. Now let it go. Uh, but no, it's like an ointment. It's, it's yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, I, I thought vi- actually visually I was really impressed because knowing that they didn't have, uh, you know, an endless amount of money to work with, I thought what they were able to create, I thought the cities looked really cool. Oh no, I have no criticism with the look of this film. And it looks like, and I may be wrong about this, and this is a, t- the fact that I'm not entirely sure is another testament to the effects, but I think most of the robot stuff is done practically. It is. Okay. Yeah. I think all practically all of it, <laughs> practically, practically um, all practical. It, and that's, they, this is the case for why you do that. Yes. You know, yeah, could they have made more elaborate, realistic looking like robots with CG, you know, not realistic necessarily, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. super eye robot robots? Yes. More would, spectacular. Would, would it have felt as real? No. It no. would not have gotten across what this movie needed to get across. That them being real, where you clearly could tell that they were, you know, they were physical, you could touch them, does make the difference for how you feel about them in the film. Totally. Yeah, so I, overall, I really enjoyed it. I, I didn't think it was uh, revelatory. Like, obviously, the, it does a few things for itself that establishes its identity and makes it feel like it's not just cribbing from everybody else. True. But it cribs enough from everybody else that I don't think there's anything in this that's, like, mind-blowing or thought-provoking to the level of, oh, my God, you need to see this. Yeah. But I thought it was very enjoyable. I thought it was very well done. Uh, I'd like to see more movies being made with the mindset these guys went into this one. True. Of knowing exactly how to stretch their money to make a really good-looking film without it having to be without having to make sacrifices for things. It feels it. very Neil Blomkamp in that way. Yeah, it does. Where, indeed. you know, like with District 9, he didn't have all the He had some money, but he didn't have all of the money to work with, and he still made something pretty spectacular. Yeah, he also had, like, some CG workers working fucking cheap. That's true. That's <laughs> with, very like, true. Like, really great CG guys working on the dime. That is very true. Uh, but, which is not what you're seeing here so much. But nothing looks bad because they just made it look like it's a clunky society. You yeah. know, it's kind of like the robots are, like, old school robots yeah you know it's a society of rough edges so why should their technology be any different i do like this movie don't get me wrong i just i felt like maybe it it borrowed too much from its sources for me to thoroughly get into it and ultimately but by the end they want you they want it to feel more emotionally revelatory than i think it really did so yeah i'm only kind of giving this a like nice really good effort good effort solid effort solid effort all (laughs) around Uh, yeah, moving on, we're going to talk about the only movie this week that I didn't get a chance to see, and that is Reclaim. See, you did that on purpose. No, but it worked out that way. No, I will say when it came down to like the, the last hour before we were going to, you know, 
or the last two hours before we were going to record the show, it's like, I can only have time for uh, one movie, and I've got two. I, I don't blame you. And I may have passed on the John Cusack direct-to-video movie. You made the right choice. <laughs> Huzzah! Uh, Reclaim, you may have actually seen trailers for this in theaters, because it did, in fact, get a limited theatrical Seriously? release. Seriously? Yeah, in September. It did. I saw the theater trailer for this, where I was like, that looks terrible. <laughs> uh, the idea is, well, you see, any movie where John Cusack plays the bad guy is like, no! It's going to be a bad movie. Uh, there's one. What that is I, it? I won't say it because it kind of spoils it if you know he's the bad guy. Uh, but there's one that we have seen um, recently as of a couple Fantastic Fests ago. Oh, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, no, you you're go. right. You're right. There you yeah. go. That one's good. That but, one, But that is the exception and not the rule. That is the sure. exception because generally speaking, if he's the bad guy or if he's like – if it doesn't have comedic elements and he's supposed to be a tough-as-nails assassin – yeah, fuck that movie. Yeah, watch absolutely. It. If he's a serial killer, skip it. You know, generally, <laughs> generally speaking, John Cusack just isn't good at picking those scripts. If he's Edgar Allan Poe, definitely skip it. Um, this one, Ryan Felipe, who I've always liked and felt bad that his career kind of got sidelined. It was like, sorry, kid, you did some other A-listers pushed you out. Should have worked out more. <laughs> and uh, uh, Rachel Lefevre. Lefe- What's Lefevre? Lefevre. Yeah. Lefevre. Yeah. That's how you pronounce it with the French accent. I've always kind of liked her, despite being in the Twilight films. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't. I don't know of anything I've seen her in other than the Twilight. Well, movie, anyway, so. they're an American couple who have gone to Puerto Rico to adopt, uh, like the most adorable little orphan girl in the world. This uh, little Puerto Rican girl who's just like every time she smiles, you want to adopt her. You know, she's just that. She's ridiculously commercial for adopting kids. Cute. Gotcha. <laughs> and they're all excited. They're like, yeah, we're over here and like on this beach front and we're going to adopt this kid because they show you very briefly that she lost the ability after an accident, accident to have children. Um, so they're introduced by Jackie. We- the great Jackie Weaver is like, yeah, come on in. This is going to be great. Uh, you know, they're playing with the kid. Everything seems wonderful. They're in paradise. They meet a guy visiting there played by John Cusack. Wait, Sound of car screeching to a halt. Oh, <laughs> shit. This is going to suck. Uh, uh, and, of course, it turns the whole th- out. The whole thing is a con game uh, where basically – and this is where you have to put your – check your plausibility at the door. Um, their deal is they basically get people to keep adopting the same little girl over and over again. Uh, what? Yeah. For like 60 grand. Uh, yeah. Wait, wait. Hold on. So – under that mentality, or because it's a scarcity, orphans is that a, is it a scarce natural resource? I don't get it. Either. Seems like it you would have plenty of uh, like orphan kids that are adorable that you could just keep. Face it, I, there's fucking orphans all over the place. Okay, even you can't throw a rock ones. without hitting an orphan, and stop throwing rocks at orphans. What, what the fuck is wrong seriously? with you? Seriously, that hasn't had a hard enough without you throwing rocks at them. That's cruel. Probably John Cusack throwing yeah. rocks because fuck him right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still mad at him when it turned out that he like tells everyone that Better Off Dead is a terrible movie and he doesn't understand why anybody likes well, it. Well, it's clear from his career recently that he doesn't know what that word means. True. I think Gross Point Blank was like his last really good film. I really love that movie. Yeah, that's a great movie. Like I said, the one exception where he plays a tough as nails assassin because it's also a comedy. Indeed. Anyway, uh, so they're like, no, 
we're getting our new daughter back one way or the other. And despite the fact that, that you know, Ryan Philippe isn't exactly an ex-Green Beret or anything, uh, they decide that they're going to figure this out and chase it down the bad guys and get their kid back, which just makes the bad guys go, all right, fine. Now we're going to take you for even more money because you're being dicks. And it's a series of very increasingly implausible scenarios that, you know, that's I've given you all the worst at its best. Ryan Philippe, Felipe, and Rachel Lefevre, 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 she's a kind of cheese. I just, I watched enough hockey <laughs> to know how to pronounce French-sounding names. Lefevre. Lefevre. <laughs> Guy Lefleur. Uh, they're likable enough, and they've got, they've got pretty good chemistry on screen, and they're good at the action scenes, that it, it carries it. Director Alan White films a halfway decent action scene, for that matter. There's some okay car chases in here. It's got some nice cinematography. But that's not enough. Mm-hmm. It, it, I mean, we're not talking bad on the level of like that last Bruce Willis movie we reviewed bad. Yeah, no. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, the no. Prince? No. And that whole series of films that are made by that company that are just anything with Curtis 50 Rock Jackson in it is like, oh, okay. This 50, is 50 Cent. 50 yeah. Cent? Yeah, sorry. Did I say 50 <laughs> Rock? Oh, my God. I'm like a cop in Ferguson. You're so old. <laughs> oh, my God. All them rap musicses with 50 Rock Johnson 50 Curtis. 50 Rock Johnson Curtis. Wait, he's not black. <laughs> I don't even know where we are anymore. I've, I've lost the thread of this show entirely. Um, yeah. Maybe we should reclaim the show from this movie. It's just bad. It's, just, <laughs> it's bad with some professionals who have been work who are clearly working on the camera and what have you. But the script is just half-assed. You know, I mean, everyone involved is very professional. I'll say that for it. But ultimately, you had a product that wasn't well thought out, that tries to be a sort of like cautionary tale. And you're like, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> the only cautionary tale is I caution you not to watch this movie. Ah, there you go. Hey, oh. Uh, moving on from there to something that I do encourage you to watch. Uh, and that is It Happened One Night, which is the Criterion release that we're going to review on this particular show. Uh, I had never seen this. Is this a horror movie? No, 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 it's, it's not a horror, like a horror movie. movie. It is a Frank Capra comedy that has kind of, uh, it, it is the, the progenitor of a lot of, of things that we still see in comedies today. This is a film about, uh, a man and a woman who are thrust together by circumstance, who don't like each other at first, but throughout their time on the road together, they grow to appreciate each other. And then they fall in love, which if that sounds familiar, it's because ever since this movie came out, there have been dozens upon dozens upon dozens yeah, upon dozens of movies hundreds. that have, have taken that concept and run with it. And this gets labeled a lot as a screwball comedy, which I don't really feel is – it's not screwy. Like these characters feel very grounded. They're just um, – you know, they're, they're at odds for a different reason and they just have a lot of wit. Like I don't think it's really screwy. It's just very witty. Uh, and that's really what I loved about it. It's just the interaction between uh, Clark Gable and uh, Colbert. Colbert. Yes, the the two of them together, like just it's like it's you know it's like uh, like watching The Thin Man. You know when Nick and Nora Charles are just riffing so well, it feels like that, mm. and it's it's really uh, imaginative in its its construction of the various circumstances that come along to keep. Basically, the story is that she is a a wealthy heiress. Who wants to marry this guy? And her father is just vehement, like, no, you're not going to marry him. And she's like, you've been telling me no my whole life. And she runs away, and she's trying to get from Miami to New York to get to this guy so they can get married. Well, she, in the process of running away, has lost most of her money. So she's trying to take a bus 
from Miami to New York, and it's just kind of the things that happen along the way, uh, you know. And she runs, she runs into Clark Gable, who is a newspaper man who is on the outs with his editor. Like he thinks he's a great newspaper man, but the editor thinks he's just, uh, you know, a, a cheap, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, a sensationalist, and they don't get along. And he kind of sees this whole situation as a chance to write a really great story. So he, you know, he stays along with her. He helps her get from place to place and they bicker all the time. But it's one of those things that because watching this after seeing all of, you know, the comedies that have kind of cribbed from it, I knew exactly what was going to happen because it's like, this is how you make this type of comedy now. And this is the blueprint. This film is the blueprint for all of that. And one of only three films to win all five major Academy Awards, picture, director, actor, actress, and screenplay, with uh, Silence of the Lambs and One Flew's Over the Cuckoo's Nest being the only other two. It is one of the great American films. I mean, it is a true classic. Any AFI list, whether it's comedy or just films in general, is going to list this very, very, very high. Uh, wonderful movie. I really, really loved it. And it is a very, it's a fantastic release by Criterion. I will say, I think just because of the age of this movie – there are parts where it, it like the the colors are really like the lighting feels really blown out like maybe it was overexposed like the film stock may have been overexposed at some point um uh, so there's there's some flaws to be sure but uh they have cleaned it up it's obvious that there has been some care to clean it up and the extras are astounding on this one of the things they have is a full 90 minute documentary about Frank Capra that is hosted and narrated by Ron Howard huh. and they talk to some of the biggest names in filmmaking uh, and it's it's a really excellent documentary, and it was just like, wow, that entire documentary is a special feature, as is Frank Capra's very first film. It's a short, silent film called uh, Fulta Fisher's Boarding House, which is written by Rudyard Kipling, and it's just this short film. It's the very first thing Frank Capra ever did, and it's just – it's mind-boggling to me that, like, that's just a special feature on this Blu-ray. Here's the first film Frank Capra ever made. That's what you get when you're buying from Criterion. Indeed. You get extras like that. Indeed. They make it so worth your while. Yeah, and I, I highly, highly recommend this. This is my pick of the week, not only because of the importance of the movie and understanding how comedies are made, not only because it's a great movie in and of itself, uh, but it, the extras really just blew me away. I thought mm. this was one of the better Criterion releases in a long time. Fair enough. All right. Well, oh, oh, one quick thing, though. The plot of the film does not take place over one night. So the title kind of confuses me a okay, little bit. Well, you can't give a pick of the week then. No, no, no. I still will. But Clearly, like, Clearly, this movie is a liar. <laughs> this movie is a punished. lie. Portal told, told me this movie is a lie. Uh, <laughs> because the story it's based on is called Night Bus, and they changed it to It Happened One Night. But the events take place over several days. I don't get how that works. Anyway, not important. Maybe the really important stuff happens on one night. Maybe that's what it is. Okay. Uh, we're going to move on from there to another classic film getting a Blu-ray release, and that is The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. <laughs> it's better than The Cabinet of Dr. Kildare. Honestly. I was going to say The Cabinet of Dr. Calamari, because that smells like fish. Mmm. <laughs> mmm, delicious oh, with a little bit of sauce. Mm. Okay, this is one of the greatest films ever made, in my humble opinion. Certainly... The greatest silence. Now, come on, Chris. When have you ever had a humble opinion? Mm, usually, see, when I was younger, <laughs> when someone would disagree with me, I'd go, fuck you. Here's why I'm right. And nowadays, I'm more like, that's fine. When I was younger and in my more vulnerable years, I used to scream, fuck you, to people who didn't agree with me. Yeah. And now I'm just like, you know, you, you, that's fine. For me, it's that way. If it's not for you, that's fine. I don't just, I just don't care what your opinion is anymore. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> 
just like, let's be real here. Let's be real. I used to feel, you know, injured by the fact you had a different opinion. Now I'm like, yeah. And now I just realize how superior I am to you, and your opinion means nothing in the grand scheme and of things. Now that I've been elevated to godlike status, See, I realize I, you can't be troubled with what the peons are doing. It's like AA in here. It's all about honesty. <laughs> no, it really is, though. It's widely regarded as oh, one it's, of it's the greatest movies ever made. I think it's the best silent film ever made. This is from the one of the greatest periods in filmmaking ever, which was the 20s in Germany, the Expressionist period that produced so many just groundbreaking films. I mean, Nosferatu. This is how big this period was. German mm. films were outselling some films being made in Hollywood in America. Yeah. Because they were just that incredible. I mean, films in a foreign language were doing that well in America that they were beating out Hollywood films. Yep. That's how good these movies really were. Metropolis, of course, the big one. Anything with Fritz Lang attached to it, pretty much. Um, This was in 1920 from a director, Robert Wien, uh, and it, a lot of people thought this was based on a pre-existing story. It wasn't. They actually came up with this story themselves. Because it feels like myth. It, it does. It feels like a fairy tale come to life. It's like en- a really dark fairy tale. And it's entered into myth since. Yeah, you know, that's it's true. Become, it's, so much stuff has been influenced by it. So many, uh, you see Doc Caligari used over and over again in other things. Jason Murphy this Halloween went as, uh, the, the, the protagonist. The and, protagonist from yeah, this. girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, well, he didn't go as bad with his wife when it's... <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a costume. That would have been interesting. But the idea here is it's a framed story with a guy saying, telling somebody else about like, oh, this is, you know, this, you got to tell you about this thing that happened to me, which is uh, maybe the first example ever of a framed story on film. Uh, and basically it's this guy who comes to their town, Dr. Caligari, who uh, has a circus sideshow type act where he reveals the guy who's a somnamb- somnambulist. I never know how to say that right. Somnambulist. Who's basically yeah. somebody who is asleep forever. <laughs> Until during the show, he is awakened by his master and then can talk about the future and the past. Yeah, he, he He's makes, like in a trance all the time. And it's always creepy. Like the one guy who's friends with the main character goes, hey, how long will I live? He's like, you will live at least until the break of, the break dawn. of dawn. He's like, well, that's thanks. <laughs> it's not wildly. Maybe I should have asked you uh, what are my lottery numbers going to be if I get them tonight. But uh so that guy turns up dead. Other people are turning up dead. Suspicion is being cast at various people, but mainly at Do- Dr. Caligari and his somnambulous uh, Cesar. Cesar. Yeah. And okay. So you've got a story that starts like that, gets very twisty, ends on what is probably the first major like plot twist in film history. <laughs> and, What's a twist? And indeed, this is considered to be the first horror film yes. ever made. Yes. Like the first horror film. And it is. It's freaky. Even today, it's still pretty goddamn spooky. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that all the sets were built and painted. They painted the light and shadows onto it. Yeah. And it's all done with this crazy, like I said, this is expressionism, this like bent, warped universe. It all looks like what a nightmare looks like. Yeah. It it looks like if you took an Edvard Munch painting and set a horror film inside of it. I mean, there's no question that Tim Burton watched this movie over and over and over again growing up. Yeah. And still has never done anything as impressive as what this film looks like. Like the spires of houses are are bent and they look like teeth. It looks like some, you know, unholy ancient monster living in the hills and it's just a village. Like they take the very mundane... Uh, imagery, the very normal everyday imagery, and make it look like some kind of ancient nightmare. Yeah, absolutely. And so 
like in in no way you can ever predict what's going to come next either. Like every set is so unique and different. I mean, this is just like probably my favorite example of set design ever. And even the costumes, the way the makeup is done on the acting, Mm -hmm. uh, the acting itself where they were instructed to act sort of with weird jerky motions. It's, yeah. To give the whole thing this sort of nightmare feel that well, and it's, works. It, it's definitely I, – I love movies of this era because you can see the theatrical training. You can see like everybody at the time, you know, before film came along, were doing theatrical plays. And in the early films, you can see that style of acting, that kind of overexpressive because you're playing to the back of the house. The people in the very back rows have to see what you're doing. So it's like this sort of like – Greek theater acting or, or Greek mask acting. And that's what you have with this as well. Which was definitely one of the problems when some of the early talkies where people were still acting in that way and it just didn't translate as well right. with the talkies. With a film like this, a horror film, it really works. It works great. Now, this movie, of course, has come out before. <laughs> There's quite a few DVD releases of this. In fact, I think there was even like a kind of a cheapy Blu-ray release of this. I'm not sure. But... This is the most thorough and intense scanning and fixing of this film ever. It is a 4K restoration from the original camera negative, which is amazing that still exists. And there are um, shots in this movie where the actors look like they were doing this yesterday. It's yeah. It's really eerie. It's an astonishingly beautiful transfer of this thing. I mean, it just, this is going to be, there's, there, I can't imagine being able to make a better cleaner cut of this until and this. you know but it's like metropolis to next year in an attic somewhere in peru someone will find it they're uh, gonna find another reel of this movie it's like an alternate ending to <laughs> dr Caligari. uh it also has which i like they did this a lot of silent films in the years since various people have done various interpretations of what the score should go with it because some films they still have the notes that the orchestras would play with it there yeah the, and the, some like the, they and some they don't and yeah. so it's just like well it'll be something different every time you see it uh in this particular one has two tracks. One is the from the original score performed here by the University of Music in Freiburg, Germany. Uh, that's the one I listened to. I did not, and I'm going to go back and listen to this. Uh, I did not listen to the alternate score, which is by DJ Spooky, who is incredible. DJ Spooky also did a really great one for uh, Birth of a Nation. Oh, wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's yeah. surprising. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, on a lot of levels, but it's it's still it's it's a really great alternate soundtrack for that. Uh as well, you get a wonderful, just a really wonderful 53-minute documentary, German documentary called Caligari How Horror Came to the Cinema that's not what you think it's about. I yeah. was expecting a sort of like making of and what it's really about is the first thing I've ever seen about like looking at how Germany got to the point of accepting Hitler mm-hmm. and and, and, you know, saying, oh, this is a viable politician in this way of thought by examining the culture and the entertainment and what was happening within that, what that build was and a very intellectual, psychological analysis of this period. Just fascinating. It belongs on a set discussing World War Two or yeah. World War One even. Uh, and here it's just, you, it's filled with footage from other crazy expressionists on the films. You're like, dude, I got to see all these. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not hard to figure out that like the reason that Germany and was leading the way in film, in horror films, in, in, in films of this, of this type, uh, is that the birth of cinema coincides with the absolute decimation of Germany after world war one. Yeah. Like it was a really macabre place just to begin with. And I think that when you have that going on and then it's like, oh, here's a new artistic medium to express how you feel about that. That's why you get like this this font of, you know, people like F.W. Murnau and and uh, 
Robert, Robert, Robert Wayne and uh, of course uh, uh, Fritz, Lang. Fritz Lang. Yeah. yeah. So like all those guys, I think were just kind of reacting to how completely destroyed their entire, you know, everything they'd ever known had been kind of blown to bits, and it's just kind of picking up the pieces and expressing the darkness and the macabreness of that just naturally. And they're also talking about the fact that like nobody really was entirely sure what was coming next either. There's a lot of confusion inherent in this film itself about like sort of, we want this, but we don't want this. There's mm-hmm. a lot of expressionism was about kind of like uh polar opposites at the same, experiencing polar opposites at the same time, yeah. like con- contradicting things. And this documentary goes into that and how that, not only what the, that was showing and, you know, how that is exemplified in this film, but how that was what was actually happening in their culture at that yeah. point. Really fascinating stuff. This is my pick of the week because whereas I had a previous DVD copy, it didn't look half as good as this, nor did it come with as many interesting things about the film. I just, this is one of these I'll just go back to again and again and again. Right on. And so if you, good. If you're interested, uh, DJ Spooky's version is called Rebirth of a Nation. So check that out as well. <laughs> Uh, moving on from there, we're going to talk about Housebound, which is what Chris and I are most of the time when doing this show. Yeah, but intentionally. Intentionally. You don't need to put a little... If I was ever... You know, it reminds me of that old Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. It's like, all right, Calvin, that's it. You say one more thing. You'll go to bed without supper. And he's like, yay! He's like, somehow I don't think that punishment works for him. I'm yeah. kind of that way with like, if I ever did something where I'd get house arrest, I'd be like, awesome. Yeah, Eddie Izzard <laughs> has this great bit where he talks about house arrest. He's like, so just stay here. Okay. And then just show him like smoking and eating popcorn. He's miming it. And he goes, do you have any videos? It's like, that's exactly, it would be awesome. I would love that. Yeah. That's like, I, you know, it's like, honey, can you go to the store and get us some? I can't. I've, I got to stay here. It's, it's the law. It's the law that you have to sit here, watch movies and you can't run errands. Yeah. What do I have to do? Like, just tell me and well, I'll do it right now. What law specifically do I have to break to make yes. this happen? In fact, that's really what the plot of this uh, very well-received South by Southwest film from this past year is about, where uh, Morgana O'Reilly, she looks like a Morgana, doesn't she? Yes, totally. absolutely. Looks she like looks what, like Wednesday Adams grew up and moved to New Zealand. Yeah, she's a, she plays Kylie, who is a, a failed thief that basically gets nine months of house arrest, forced <laughs> to go back home and live with her very nice but kind of doddering she's not the girl with the dragon tattoo she's the girl who was dragging her boyfriend away from a failed atm (laughs) holdup. yeah not as smart as that no but um she like resents she resents all uh all the entire premise of normality yeah and even though you know i mean like they're like oh you'll be home with your mother and your stepfather that'll be a normal life maybe you'll start to figure out your priorities and i don't like to throw around the c word but again this movie this chick is a real cock yeah she's (laughs) <laughs> okay. <laughs> I see what happened there. Uh, um. <laughs> she is though. Like she, she's like her parents didn't do anything to like get her in trouble, and they're no. they're not even like judgmental about it. They don't give her shit she's for a, it. She's a she's a rebellious teenager. She's rebelling what it is, nothing, and she's but... too old to be still doing this, yes. quite frankly. But that's what she's doing, and you, we don't know. We haven't really seen the family. We know the mother. Is you know I mean she's not she feels like she's not altogether there but she's sweet the stepfather is it doesn't even want to be there he's like he's sweet too but he's also like I realize this is none of my business so I'm just gonna largely stay out of it and she's just causing 
she's just causing trouble left and right. Her family is kind of scared of her. Now, everything gets really weird when her mother keeps saying, oh, yeah, the house is haunted. Definitely there's a ghost here. And she didn't take it seriously at all. When shit starts happening that makes it clear something supernaturally appears to be going on in this house. And then when she digs into the history of the house, wouldn't you know it, there are a few skeletons in the closet. Yeah. Now, that's as much as we can say about the plot without taking away the real joy that is Housebound. Because this is a super fun little horror comedy that pulls its twists and turns in a very convincing and very entertaining, unexpected way. Mm -hmm. Every You'll be watching this thinking, oh, I know that I've seen movies like this kind of movie. You're supposed to be feeling that. Right. Because the moment they've got you convinced it's one kind of movie, they, you know, pull the sheet off and go, ah, it's not. (laughs) But then they're not even done then. Yeah. It's very clever, very funny movie that does end up where you eventually really like this girl because she is kind of got a ultimately turns into a sort of girl with a dragon tattoo type type female lead. But this is God damn it, it pisses me off you can't say but you yeah. can barely say yeah, anything about this it. movie. I really don't want to ruin this for you guys. I have recommendations so because as it navigates through different tones, it does each one very well. And I think that's that's kind of the nice thing about it is as it as it makes those shifts, you never feel like it's taking a left turn and it's a completely different film because it manages to you know to to handle all those varying tones very well. Yeah, and it, it like its humor really works. All the actors are really on point in here. I mean, like the one of the things in here that's supposed to be really scary ends up being one of the funniest things about this whole movie. Like where it just made me laugh every time it started going on again. It's like, that's just so awesome. Uh, and it, it's funny. Like the, it's like every part of this team. So understood what the joke was that they're all in on the cinematography all has this sickly unwell sense. Everything is this, gross tones of tan and sepia. Everything seems to be kind of falling apart and moldering. It's like, it feels like it shouldn't be the type of film that it isn't because that's so important in the drawing you into its trap. True story. Yeah. No, I like this very much. I I didn't get the chance to see it. Uh, I, I I can't remember. I had seen part of it. I don't know if like I was at part of a screening at South by, I don't know, but I didn't get to see all of it. So it was nice to, to catch it here on Blu-ray and yeah, I highly recommend it. Yeah. It Good comes stuff. with commentary with the writer, director, producer, and executive producer, a couple deleted scenes that are actually kind of interesting, and that's about it. But still, really, really good. Highly recommended. Doug Benson. That's what was going to drive me crazy. What, you saw instead of? No, I was I was trying to think, like, that whole, like, I don't like to use a C word, but you're a cock. I'm like, I feel like I've heard that before. Like, I feel like it got into my brain uh. from something else. It was Doug Benson. Okay. I was That was literally the whole time we were doing that review. I'm like... Where the fuck did I hear that before? All right, what's the next movie, you cunt? The, <laughs> the next movie we're going to talk about is The Bubble. The Bubble. And no, this is not a Jake Gyllenhaal comedy that almost ruined his career. This is... It's, wow. It's Under the Dome meets The Prisoner meets a Twilight, The Twilight Zone Stranger in a Small Weird Town. Here's what I want you to do. Before you watch this movie, I want you to go into your mom's medicine cabinet, <laughs> take the top off of every single pill bottle... And just dump them all into your hand and pop those back like they're a handful of nerds. Like, that's the only way to really enjoy this film, I think, is it is a psychedelic 3D science fiction movie from the 60s. See, for me, 
I like, okay, so like, I really loved The Prisoner. Like, really loved it. And it was not for everybody. It's really weird. It's got a cheap budget. It didn't really make a lot of sense overall, but it had this just sort of sense of fun to it. We were like, I know this is dumb and some of the acting isn't even all that great, but I really want to see what happens. <laughs> and the bubble kind of gave me that kind of feel. It's like, it harkens back to the stuff I kind of discovered sci-fi with. like Drugs. Like, like, yeah, well, no, that came later. <laughs> uh, and like I said, the, the very much Twilight zone type plot of guy shows up in a small town where everything's just not quite right. No. That being said, this is no classic. No. There's a lot of problems with this. Most likely the thing you want to beat yourself over the head with is these people who, like this guy... And is about to give birth wife and the airplane pilot that's for some reason taking them to the hospital so she can give birth. They have to like make an emergency stop after a storm in this town and they can't leave because it's trapped by this, as it turns out, this giant bubble over it. And everyone in the town acts so weird, not just weird, like they're robots who can't stop saying and doing the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. And nobody really makes a big deal out of it. Yeah, nobody mentions the fact that they're apparently in Westworld. I mean, like, they, one of the first things they go into this bar and the bartender won't stop saying, you know, like, uh, like, what can I get you, gents? What can I get you, gents? What can I get you, gents? He won't respond to anything else. And they just laugh about it and get drunk. Yeah. Like, oh. That's not weird at all. Let's get drunk. And, uh, uh, and it uh, takes a while before anyone actually goes, maybe we should be panicking. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very frustrating if you're trying to judge this by any sort of modern you know, sensibility. Cause yeah. you're like, that's stupid. Nobody would do that. Well, and it also has that thing that kind of drives me nuts. Like even in old 3d movies that I do like, like house of wax, where it's like those scenes that are in there just to be like, Ooh, look at that. Like there's the a 3D. floating beer tray scene in this where I'm just like, Oh my God. <laughs> you actually see the, you can clearly see the fishing line. Yeah. Because <laughs> they keep like the closer they push it to the camera for the 3d. I'm like, guys, it just looks more fake when you do that. Stop doing that immediately. Well, apparently this actually is th 3D. Like there, if like you have a 3D a, TV. If you have a 3D TV, you can watch it. And from what I've read, I don't have one, that they actually did a great job with it. That it looks – when you watch it in 3D, it actually is pretty damn good 3D for the time. So Fair it's enough. just whenever you watch it in 2D, it's like, okay, come on. That's really – Maybe we should each put 3D TVs on our wish list before Christmas. <laughs> right? Actually, I don't even want one that bad. But I'm then we could – Not a big the, fan but, of 3D. But but then – Overrated. Why are you ruining this for me? When they come up with the Tingler TVs, then I'll do that. You, is that your code name for a TV that will tickle your balls while you watch TV? Shut up, Brian. <laughs> I thought so. This is like a little cult film, and you'll see why. There's a lot of stuff to actually like about this when you can get past all the stuff that's completely preposterous and doesn't work. But it's so odd, even for 1966. Yeah, there's because like there's all that stuff going on, all that sci-fi stuff, all that Twilight Zone stuff. And then there are scenes that feel like they're straight out of Roger Corman's The Trip. Like there's a scene where they're sitting there, and there's like these floating awfully constructed masks. Yeah. And it's like, look at this. Now look, I'm like, okay, first of all, I don't know why this scene is here. And secondly, those look awful. Please stop focusing on them. Like I said, it's a 66 tiny budgeted cult film and there's, it doesn't really resemble anything else on the whole. It was, you can see why it wasn't a big hit at the time, but in retrospect, it's like going back and watching, in fact, an old William Castle movie or something. It's pretty fun as a little campy, uh, or not campy, but as a little culty film, I actually really enjoyed this quite a bit for what it is. Hmm. Like you couldn't make this shot for shot now and sell Nor it to anyone. Nor would you want to. No, right? But <laughs> but for what it is, I'm like, 
I don't know. I had fun with this. I would go back and watch this again. I would write songs about it if I was in the Smashing Pumpkins or something, you know. Good for you, man. I, I was like, I couldn't, I really wanted to like this. And I was just like, you're killing me with this, this psychedelic stuff and these awful, like, there was stuff that they didn't, that really was non sequitur to the plot. Yeah. That was additionally terrible. So it's like you're adding stuff that makes the movie worse that that has nothing to do oh, with yeah, the actual plot. Oh yeah, there's lots of stuff in here that makes no sense in yeah. the context of it, and I love every bit of that stuff. I Fair love enough. It. That's part of why this film is funny because you are admittedly you're laughing at this film. Oh, at it completely. But, but yeah. it's so much fun to do because it just never lets up, and yeah. there's always a new reason to have fun with it because it's just so. I don't know if they thought people would be on drugs who were seeing it, and so they'll just do as much possible stuff like that for them. Yeah, but uh. Hey, I had fun, and there's an on it, uh, alternate opening available both in 2D and 3D. There's a demonstration of how they did the restoration for uh, for it, an essay uh, about get, offering insight into the period and the restoration as well, uh, screenplay excerpts from deleted scenes, which apparently don't exist anymore, which isn't terribly surprising, uh, stills gallery, and what have you. But I thought this was a good time if you're in the mood for this sort of thing. All right. And moving on from there, we're going to talk about As the Light Goes Out, which was a, a, a big surprise this week. Uh, I didn't really know anything about this movie or what to expect, but uh turns out it's like the Hong Kong backdraft times 10. Yeah, it's a uh, it's I mean, like Hong Kong lately has been really trying to push making the this is our blockbuster film and they haven't really got it yet. No, because usually it involves spending a lot of money on terrible special effects. Yeah. And like maybe scripts that are character building that's just all too familiar. Agreed. Uh, for whatever reason. And this does indeed suffer from some level of that. You've still got, you know, it's about a group of fire, uh, firefighters and it has a lot of very familiar types of relationships you see in gangster films in Hong Kong, you see in comedies in Hong Kong. Like, you're like, oh, okay, these guys were brothers, but now they have problems because of something that happened earlier. And fewer boardroom scenes than most Hong Kong films. True. Not no boardroom scenes, no, of but course they, fewer boardroom scenes. still have scenes. to have a few boardroom scenes. I, that, that baffles me. You watch these Hong Kong movies and there's always a scene of people sitting around a table trying to, like, figure out some report. And it's just like, what the... Who paid for this table and wants to shoot it all the time? But that being said, once this thing actually starts going and going into the fires, it has a style all its own. Yeah, I and, mean, it's, and it's pretty harrowing. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's science realistic. <laughs> I mean, it has that sort of, it reminded me, if nothing else, of uh, what was the uh, the one of it that where, where uh, global warming caused the day after tomorrow? Day after tomorrow, where they've sort of so anthropomorphized the icy wind that it right. actually makes lion roars. Well, here they're kind of doing that for what they call the thick smoke, which yes. is like like is stalking these guys like Jason Voorhees throughout yeah. the movie. But if you get past it, that probably is not actually how smoke works. That um. And just buy into it. It actually makes it pretty scary, pretty harrowing, and pretty fun to, pretty beautiful to watch at points. And one of the visually. things I, I did like about it is that at a certain point in the movies, very early on, like pretty much right after the prologue scene, there's this moment where all of a sudden meteors start falling from the sky. <laughs> You're like, and I'm like, fuck? what the fuck is happening? <laughs> and then like you hear like that sounds like police story music. And then Jackie Chan rolls up on a motorcycle, and I'm like. 
okay, this is what I expected. Like, this is what I joke about happening in Hong Kong movies when they go completely ridiculous and over sure. the top. And then they pull back and you realize you're watching a training video where they have specifically gone over the top and gotten Jackie Chan. And he's like, fire can happen at any time. Be prepared. And the guys sitting around watching are like, these are ridiculous. Why do they make us watch these? They're making fun of their own movies. Yeah. It's, it's like one of the first times I remember a Hong Kong film that's trying to be big budget also being meta. And I was True. like, wow, that's really interesting. I like that a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's just for a second there, you get excited because you think Jackie Chan's going to be around. <laughs> like, Whoa, Jackie Chan's in this? What the yeah, hell? Kind of. And instead, it's, it, it really does play up, you know, like you see in, uh, you know, firefighter movies made in America. It's got the whole brotherhood angle. It's got the whole, like, the guy who's about to retire because he's sure. just seen too much. Oh, and there's then... a lot of cliches that don't feel as insulting because we're watching it in Chinese, to be yeah, quite honest. Yeah, it's like, they, they haven't done this before. Yeah, well, like, they have, to be fair. <laughs> well, but it's like the the one firefighter who refuses to follow protocol because that's not how you save lives. Damn it! Yeah, that too. Yeah, that's in almost every cop film ever. <laughs> that's true. From I Hong guess. Kong. It's but in this all is what firefighters. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> the film makes a point of letting you know this is dedicated to all the hero firefighters of the world. Great, you can't talk shit about firefighters. I don't mean that cynically. You can't. You can't. You. Seriously, you would you would be a giant douche nozzle if you actually talked shit about firefighters. Yeah, yeah, you can't do that. They are indeed heroes, uh, and. I I think more than anything, this movie's just it's fun. It it's moves a lot of pretty fun. quick. Like what stuff there is kind of eye rolling is all character based and mm. you like get past that pretty pretty fast onto well designed little tense action scenes. I mean, ultimately you end up with all these guys who are trapped in- inside of the bizarrely huge natural gas plant yeah. and labyrinthine natural gas plant that's on fire like everywhere yeah. and you know it's a good 40 minutes of this film is them trying to escape like having to use their wits to get through this thing this movie really does have like Irwin Allen uh uh what am I what am I uh, sensibilities not, sens- not sensibilities but uh ambition it has Irwin Allen ambition where it's like we're not just going to fight a fire we're going to have a fire that like is in danger of engulfing the whole city and we're going to be fighting one fire for 40 minutes. You know, like that's, that's like towering inferno stuff, except instead of up, it's just wide. Right. Yeah. True. Yeah. And, and I liked it a lot. Yeah. I actually really enjoyed this too. A lot more than I thought I was going to. Um, yeah. I, I don't think it maybe is for everybody, but like I give it a, give it a try. It's effects are a lot better than a lot of recent Hong Kong big budget films have been. Certainly. I thought very few points where I felt like I saw the seams overall, Pretty exciting. Awesome. Well, that's going to bring us to the last title of the show, which is also going to be our giveaway. And that is coming to us from the great white north of Norway, Ragnarok. Down in Ragnarok. (laughs) Down in Ragnarok. When I told him... You have to watch this movie, Ragnarok. That's what he did right then I on the spot. It. And then, like, twice since then, people have mentioned it. And he's like, like, I think we were in the movie theater. He was four rows back. And we were talking about, we were this. <laughs> like, okay, we get it. You're like Fraggle. I, I'm sorry. It just, it makes me laugh every time. Uh, and this, but this is not about Fraggles, believe it or not. No, no. There are no Fraggles down in this rock. Uh, <laughs> but what you do get is a film that, despite not being in English, is so a love letter to the films of Steven Spielberg and in the best possible way. Yeah. It's like, fuck you, J.J. Abrams. This is how you make a love letter to Steven Spielberg. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a movie about a scientist who is specifically studying Viking culture because, you know, if you're an anthropologist and you live in Norway, why wouldn't you study Vikings? Um, and he's he's basically got this theory about this one Viking queen and what her burial mound tr- is trying to tell us about Ragnarok, which is sort of the... 
the uh, Viking end of the world mythology. And so he, he takes his whole family. It's like a family vacation they're going to take up to this place where he believes the Vikings had traveled that no one else seems to. Believe. The one, the, the, the one thing that doesn't work about this movie to me is that the dissenting board of directors is so dissenting that I'm just like, why are you even people? Like, why? Why, why are you even involved in giving money to archaeologists in the first twice place? Twice they you're say cynical. Twice they say this is what we're giving money to, and I'm just like, why do you give money to anyone if you hate? Every, like, literally, they're like, uh, he, he's like, I have evidence that Vikings actually traveled up to this country because we found uh, these microscopic shells on their ships that only exist that in that country. Like pretty compelling evidence. And they're like, yeah. is this the only evidence you have? It's and, like, and you mean like, this compelling evidence? And then he's like, no, I've got all this other too. And they're like, whatever. It's just like, then just leave. But yeah. so he, he takes his whole family on a trip up to this. Uh, I think it's up near like at the top of Finland actually yeah. is where they're going to travel to prove that this is where this Viking queen has traveled. And it's somehow connected to Ragnarok. And when they get there, what? See, eh, <laughs> damn it, that was you. me. I'm gonna get you. Shit. Uh, and then what they discover when they get there is that there's something. It what destroyed this uh, this particular clan of Vikings wasn't the end of the world. It was a creature of unimaginable terrifyingness. Yes. And, like, the big thing I was worried about here, knowing this was going to be a monster movie, ultimately, I was worried that the monster would just not be that convincing. And I needn't have worried, because this thing is fucking terrifying. It really is. And I part of that is I, because of the, the Spielberg tropes that they, they borrow in that yeah. they don't always show it. Sometimes yeah. it's just ripples in the water. Sometimes it's like... You just hear it like it's it's very much in the same way that like you don't see much of the shark in Jaws yeah. kind of a thing. Or like I kept thinking of Jurassic Park in the last oh, 30 absolutely. minutes of this. There's absolutely. lots of sequences. You're like, this reminds me of exactly how I felt when the kids were hiding in the kitchen exactly. from the Velociraptors. Yeah. You, know, uh, you know, when they show it, it's right in your face and looking around. You're like, holy shit. Yeah, when they're running around in, in Finland in this forest, you feel like they're on Ila Nublar. Yeah. Like, most of the time. This is a really solid family-friendly, I can't believe I'm saying this, a really solid family-friendly adventure film from Sweden. It's yeah. like, it, what, there you go. It just is. Or Nor uh, Norway. Norway. So yeah, yeah. It's a lot of fun. It's well acted. It has terrific special effects. And beautiful cinematography. Oh, my, oh God. my God. Well, I mean, it doesn't hurt where they're filming. It's just... But they take know. advantage of it. They have these huge sweeping helicopter shots. Yeah. And, I mean, again, like just owing to Spielberg and his his uh, his the spectacle that he's able to bring to the screen and enhancing natu natural beauty. I actually think it's amazing that I saw this film for the first time on the same day that I watched the Jurassic World trailer. Because uh -huh. it was like, I saw that, and I was like, oh, now I'm so excited for Jurassic Park. And I popped this in, and I'm like, I feel like I'm back in Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! It appropriate. Yeah, totally, totally. Highly, highly recommend. Excellent film. Oh, yeah, so uh, and, good. Even, yeah. like, it was funny because I'm... Um, I was thought this creature looked so real. I was like, they had to have done that with practical because you never see CG coming outside of America looking this good. And then I looked at the extras. It's like, wow, this thing was made with a lot of CG. It's just seamlessly done. Yeah. Like, I mean, even a stuff lot of like, the island itself isn't even real. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, holy shit. It's pretty yeah. fantastic. Really good. Very tense, but very fun and appropriate to take your kids as long as they're not like those that can't watch anything scary at all. Absolutely. Yeah. And we are giving away, uh, I think we have, do we two have copies. two copies of Ragnarok on Blu-ray? And here's how you're going to win. First, you're going to follow us on Twitter at one of us net, and then you're going to tweet at us with the answer to this hypothetical. Um, in terms of, and I just want you to limit this to things that have happened in the world of film. 
what are the things that have happened in the world of film that seem to you to be signals of the coming Ragnarok? Oh, see, that makes sense. Yeah, so... And there's too many answers. Yeah, don't... don't. We don't want to... The real world is too awful and scary to make jokes about. So let's focus on things that have happened in Hollywood and the world of film that signal to you that, in fact, Ragnarok, the end of the world, is upon us. Indeed. You're going to hashtag that Ragnarok giveaway, and we will pick our two favorites, and those two will win Blu-rays open U.S. residents only. I'm very sorry. 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 It's all Brian's fault for it's a, it. It really is. Most things are. But that's it. That's the end of the show. We're done. Woo. Good job, cut. Woo. Cut. <laughs> Over. But before we go, I want to remind you yet again that you can follow us on Twitter at one of us, Nat, at DigiNoiseCast, or individually, I'm at BryGuySalisbury. I'm at Chris Cox Critic. And of course, you can like the website on Facebook, Facebook.com slash one of us, Nat. Check out, we've got like all kinds of new stuff, blogs and podcasts galore, like anything that you're into, we're going to have an outlet for. We are growing by leaps and bounds. Every month, and it's very exciting. And don't forget to check out the new weekly show coming out Monday mornings before you even leave for work, uh, The Breakfast Pub, that's only located in the, in the forums if you're a subscriber. Get a subscri- subscription. I mean, literally, you can get even the lowest one at $2 a month, and you'll still be able to get access to this podcast. But you got to keep up your subscription to keep getting it, and we think you're really going to like it. We're certainly having a lot of fun recording. Absolutely, absolutely. And please keep using those Amazon links as you do your holiday shopping. But that pretty much takes care of all the housekeeping, so I'm going to end the show as I usually do, reminding you that no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. 